everybody. Welcome to episode 40-4-0 of the Mountain Bike Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Lee, with my co-host, Stephen Lewis. Hello. And our, we have a special guest with us again. Kurt, again. Yes, again. Again. <laughs> yeah, again. Back again. for the third time. <laughs> yeah. Kurt Gensheimer, what's up, man? How's it going? Doing well, man. Happy oh, New Year. Well. Yes, yeah. sir. Happy Thank New you. Year. Yeah, thanks. Likewise. Uh, you've been, what have you been doing lately? Uh, for those that don't know, actually, we should intro you really quick. Uh, you're a rider, um, rider and writer. Yep. In the world of mountain bikes, an advocate for many things that I feel are good for mountain bikes. I think that's a good way to just sum things up in general. You're kind of known as like the go-to guy for everything in the Sierra Buttes, Downeyville, everything else. You've got the beta on all of that stuff as well. So if you want to go back and listen to different episodes and, and get some knowledge from Kurt, especially about that region, you should check him out. So, but how you been, man? Excellent. What have you been doing lately? Uh, lately... I've actually been riding my bike and riding my uh, riding my moto. I got into riding motos this summer. Out of boy, out of boy. It's like starting over from scratch, just getting <laughs> hand, my butt handed to me all the time. It's very enduro of you. <laughs> Crashing multiple <laughs> yes. times a ride, yeah. yeah. So it's it's cool to learn something new and be humbled and you know learn new skills. Um, but it's a different game, right? Like totally different. I think yeah, that. Totally um, different. When I, so I went, I did the other thing, you know, race moto my whole life and then, and just motocross, never did enduro. Like I would trail ride some, but it, mostly I was confined to tracks um, yep. by choice. Right. Yep. And then when I picked up mountain biking, I just got, the first time I was at the scout troop and I just got humbled by these kids just dropping me going up a hill, dropping me going down. I felt like a fish out of water. Yep. I thought I was just going to be a natural. Yeah. It's terrible. Yeah. It's <laughs> terrible. Different. Yeah. It's different, but it's fun and, and, uh, riding the bike. I mean, the mountain bike lately, the past few weeks here in the Sierra, there's been not much snow. So mm. season started out great with skiing a lot, but then it just kind of got warm. Yeah. So that's yeah. what I've been up to. Are you doing anything for cyclocross? I know that's a bad word on this podcast now. People it's not a bad like word. It. It's a, it's a fun word. It's yeah. a ridiculous <laughs> word. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and you doing anything for cyclocross Nats? Um, no, I'm going to be pitting for a few friends. Um, nice. my buddy Victor is coming up from San Diego. He's, he's won nationals a few times. So Sheldon. Yeah. I'd like to meet him. He's kind oh, of like, yeah, a, he's the man. Could you facilitate a meeting there? Cause that guy's Absolutely. like, I, I used to watch him back in steel roots and all the old moto videos and he'd be shredding on jet skis with oh, Jeremy yeah. McGrath. Like, oh yeah. Yep. Yeah. Victor was a legend, man. He still is. He still is. He's yeah. Like the guy just. He's time. I mean, he's ageless, man. He just keeps killing it. You know, he's so beating guys half his age. <laughs> yeah, and he's a he's a great human being, man. So he's gonna come up. Sweet. I'm gonna help him out. Um, might help out a couple other friends in the pit. So that's probably what I'll be doing is just heckling and pitting. Nice. It might yeah. be. It might be a mutter with your. It might ball. be a meadow. Yeah. yeah. Good. Maybe with the disco ball, it might bring that out. <laughs> Good. Nice. You know? Yeah, it could be a mutter. It Could looks be. like it might be an icer. Yeah. <laughs> see. Have you seen that off camber they built? I know for mountain bikers, bear with us. We're here. We're talking cross, but have you seen the off camber section they built? I don't know. Maybe you were involved on it's it. It's good. I was on it yesterday. It, it's uh, it's it's pretty gnarly. It is. Yeah. Is it a lot different than the cross Reno course? Very different. It's very different. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. It is. I'll have to go check it out. If if mountain bikers, I mean, uh, we have you know audience all around the world, not many in Reno, but uh, if you're listening to this or if you're in this greater northern California, Northern Nevada area should be pretty fun to watch, man. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's a long, so much time in the grass and this is not East coast grass. This is oh. thick. 
imported grass. So it's just like, it's really thick and, you know, heavy stuff. It's actually it a, a Kentucky bluegrass blend. If you <laughs> there we are. just random you knowledge know that I have. <laughs> yeah. It's not like, uh, what you get in cross Vegas, for example, no, Yeah, like cross Vegas has like a, a grass that, yeah, it feels like you're riding in Velcro, but you have no clue what riding in Velcro is like until you ride in grass. That's unnatural imported, super thick and matted like yeah, this. Absolutely. So it'll be, and it's the, the worst part is you're going to be riding on that grass and it's going to be like a 2% grade the whole time. It's just a long Even when drag you're going up. downhill, it's going to yeah, feel then like it's you're going a, yeah, uphill. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it'll be a good time, man. Yeah. Uh, so we have you here to talk um, all about HR1 or 1349 or wilderness uh, and bikes and yep. how they interface. Yep. But before we do that, Steven. We have to do the normal things. Let's do it. The news. News time. News team, assemble! All right, news. Uh, first one, I this is a, a series, a content series. It's up on Pinkbike right now. And a lot of really valuable things show up on the internet, period. But on Pinkbike that are really valuable and they or things that usually people would charge for. Yeah. I feel like this is one of them. Uh, Vorsprung did like a, they're doing a series on suspension, everything from the physics of riding a bicycle and how that might be different from, and how that may affect suspension differently than when you would have in a car or a motorcycle, for example, yeah. to simple things like talking about resonance, plenty of other stuff, but, uh, check it out. Vorsprung, they did, a, a, they're doing a series and they have a couple video pieces up. You should check it out. If you've ever wanted to understand what those squishy bits are doing underneath you when you're riding, it'll really complement, you know, some of the stuff that we've dove deep into with kinematics and then also with suspension tuning. So it carries over directly, I think. So it'll be a good follow-up for that. It's really good information. Agreed. Yeah. Uh, Rocky Mountain has a recall. We should announce this for anybody that has Rocky Mountain. Uh, Altitude, Instinct, and Pipeline bikes. They're recalled for. They're recalling something, and I almost feel like it's literally for an assembly issue. It's not yeah. a parts issue. It's not a dangerous issue for your bike. What it boils down to is when they were assembling it, they didn't leave enough slack on the cables that route from the bottom bracket to the rear swing arm. It's a common issue with a lot of bikes. A ton of them. And it's something that uh, final assemblers should catch. Any good, decent mechanic should know to catch this. Yeah. And, you know, I actually assembled a friend's new uh, pipeline like two weeks ago, and I caught it not even knowing that it was going to be a recall. Yeah. Caught it and fixed it and gave it more slack, and everything's good on my yeah. friend's bike. So it happens. It's basically that cable doesn't have enough slack. So it gets pulled up against the, the lower portion of the frame right under the bottom bracket. Yeah. And then it rubs and then that can rub through your frame and cause problems, but it can also rub through that brake line and that will also cause problems. Yeah. Uh, losing brakes. So, um, yeah, I feel like this was, uh, I don't want to get into stereotypes. I mean, this in the best way, perhaps. So this is the most, they're a Canadian bike company. This is like the most polite recall I've ever seen. Yeah. It's like, they didn't Sorry. need to do it. <laughs> yeah. They didn't even need to do it, but they, they still did it. That's so that's like, I think that shows the people at Rocky mountain. I've heard that it's a good brand. Like that they just people. care. Yeah. They care. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I feel like that's super responsible of them. That's really awesome Yep. Uh, to do that. At the very least, it doesn't even, I do think that they recommend that you bring it back to the dealer that you bought it from and yes. they can reassemble it. Um, so follow that advice, but at the very least, just give it a once over. Yeah. And it's if you don't, literally like 45 seconds worth of work, it's so simple to fix. And if you don't have a Rocky mountain, you're wondering if you have the same problem, if your cables go underneath your bottom bracket and they aren't housed in anything, but they're just underneath, you can let the air out of your shock and then just push that thing all the way down to see if they do hit yep. and then you can check it out. So 
because more bikes than just this have this problem yet. Yeah. Rocky Mountain, good on them. Yeah, my 2015 Jekyll had that problem out of the box, and I had to fix it, you know, in the stand right when I was assembling it. It happens. Uh, SRAM SRAM released uh, some brakes that's causing uh, some ruckus in the pink bike comments. They're pretty hilarious. (laughs) They're SRAM guides, but they're budget SRAM guides. They're called the SRAM Guide T series. Uh, they're pretty darn cheap, like 104 bucks. Yeah. I think that's 104 bucks for the front, 104 for the rear. Yes. That's what it seemed like. Yeah. They were very inspecific on that. Yeah. But I, I, if it's 104 bucks front and rear, then that's really strange. Yeah. <laughs> so either way, so now what they've done is they've taken their brakes that don't work <laughs> very well at all when they're not broken. Yeah. And made them cheaper. So I don't know how good that's going to be. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> what say you, Kurt? <laughs> As long as they fix that expanding uh, plunger issue where the locks break up when they're hot. Yes. I don't, you know, they work fine as long as that doesn't happen. Like, we've had that problem so much. Yeah. I can't. Did you have that on the demo rigs this year that you guys had up at Downeyville? Uh, uh, Actually, I'm not sure if our demo bikes had them or not. Um, I should say just on the the bikes and you're shuttling them. Oh, yeah. No, so... (laughs) Our fix, our Downeyville fix for that was somebody would come in the shop like, my brakes don't work, and they're about to get on the shuttle. And so we had like a bunch of frozen hot dogs in the freezer in the back of the shop. We would just like tape frozen hot dogs to their, their brake levers, and they're like, are you serious? And we're like, dude, your brakes will work by the time we get to the top. That is Sure so as hell, they work. That is funny. And then you throw the hot dog away. Yeah, you throw the hot dog. Or you jam or you the hot dog in. You know, I got hot dogged, by the way, by one of my coworkers, John and Evan. John Palmer. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah he palmered me. He put a hot dog in my wheel, in my tire, when I was not looking or something. I didn't find it for a month. And everybody knew. I guess everybody knew that I got hot dogged. And I'm like walking around and somebody, you know, leaves their bike unattended in front of the bike shop. And I'm like, hey, look out, man. John might hot dog you. Meanwhile, they're looking at me like, You're an we hot dogged him three know, weeks man. ago. He doesn't even know. That's funny, man. Thank you, you for that, it? John. Did you hear it at all in the tire? No. By the time I figured it out, I I had was I was changing the tires out to replace them. Yeah, yeah. And I like opened it up and I run orange seal and it was like, you know, <laughs> just like this coagulated like chunks Gross. and stuff and it stuck. I'm like, oh, it smells like it smells like hot dog, man. What the <laughs> hell is that? that and Mark, so I was good. at Mark Weir's house, and Weir's like, "You didn't know? They hot dogged you like a month ago, dude." I'm like, oh, that was so good, man. I got hot dog. <laughs> I'm gonna start hot dogging. That's gonna be a thing for sure. That's that is, awesome. It's already a thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, as I'm soon as people are listening it, to this, it's a thing. Yeah, now. it's a thing. People are taking. People are putting tire levers to tires right now. That's awesome, man. I I actually um I had that happen just before a race and I had to end up switching out my brakes. People had it at single track six, that race I was doing, and there were a lot of people that weren't super capable descenders riding on gnarly BC trails. Uh-huh. There was a guy that got to the top and apparently he told them when he got to the top, he said, one brake doesn't work. And then as soon as he started descending, yelled out that now the other brake isn't working and the dude ended up pile driving into a tree. Good. But like- Wow, it's really? Pretty scary stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's just complete failure. It was like a hundred degree heat. Well, the reason. Oh, they locked. 
Oh, they, it was they the expanding. The levers don't even go yeah, yeah, in. Yeah, right, yeah. Right, right, right. So then you can't, it's just like, imagine your levers just having a bolt through them. You can't move yep, them. Right. Yep. And that's what he had. It was just, it wasn't that he could pull them to the grip. They were just full locked. Yep, yep. Cause it was like a hundred degrees and super long climbs where you're in the sun the whole time. Yep. Who knows how long he had his bike sitting out in the sun before the race. So and and we did a lot of those repairs this summer. Right. A lot of warranty. Hot and hot dogs. Did SRAM finally send you guys a big box of uh, levers yeah. to have on yeah. hand just in parks. case? Yeah, they sent us a bunch of <laughs> ballparks. Yeah, ballparks and ballparks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Oh, good. Uh, for a, a, we get a lot of questions about which, what do we think about this bike? Uh, when Steven and I get to Sedona, which head over to MTB Podcast, pick up some swag. There'll be more stuff on there soon because that'll help us get to Sedona um, because I can't justify pulling money from my family vacation budget for mountain bike podcast stuff. So, uh, but if you guys can do that, then we can get to Sedona. We can demo a bunch of bikes. We can give you actual real world advice on these things. And I think that we can do a darn good job on that. And we can demo the bikes with you. Yeah. You can Not come just and ride with us. Yeah. It'd be awesome. Um, in fact, a photographer reached out to us and he wants to stay with us. So, <clears throat> okay. So if anybody else wants to stay with us, man, if there's a spec on the floor and you can fit in it, you're good. So whatever you want. But, um, anyways, the bike mag usually does a really good job on their Bible of bike tests every year. Yeah. Last year we used a bunch of their stuff Yeah, on the podcast. Yeah. It's fantastic. Yeah. And I would look at that. It's on their YouTube channel. It's also on bikemag.com. You can get the latest episode digitally or anything else. And they go into further detail on the written content. It's usually like a brief summary roundtable discussion that they have on YouTube where they highlight, you know, more general characteristics or tendencies of the bikes. And then they get into the nitty nitty gritty once yeah. they get into the written stuff. So I would check that out. They've done a ton of different bikes and some bikes that are pretty unique that mm -hmm. they haven't done in previous years. Like they yeah. demoed a spot, for example, and they, they did a review on that one. It's an interesting bike. that uses the leaf spring. Yeah. I've ridden one of those. He uses the carbon leaf. leaf yeah. Uh, They're whatever, actually yeah. supporting a uh, local enduro athlete next year. So yeah. Nice. Pretty cool. So anyways, check that out. I would, I would, uh, bike mag does a great job on that. <clears throat> Uh, last thing we'll cover with the news is team rumors. Mm -hmm. It's all the rage these days. All the rumors. Uh, first of all, I guess the first thing is CRC Nuke Proof. That team is going enduro only. Yeah. So pulling away from downhill. Uh, there's a mass exodus going on from Fox Racing. Not Fox Shocks, Fox Racing, or some people call it Fox Head. Yes. But uh, it seems like a lot of people are leaving that. So who knows if that's like a budgetary thing or how Fox is changing that. They did bring Ken Roxon back. They announced that today for Supercross. Yeah. Maybe maybe Ken stole all the mountain bikers' money. Who knows? Um, but uh, – and then Cody Kelly and Annika Burton. Cody Kelly's off Yeti. Yeah. Annika Burton's off GT. Like everybody's off GT. I don't know. I can't remember what GT's doing. But those two maybe go – they're going to an American company, and I mm -hmm. think they're going to Alchemy Bikes. Yeah. Just if you look at Cody Kelly's bike, uh, he posted something on Instagram this morning, and you can just see from the chainstay it looks like an Alchemy. Yeah, I think that's where they're going. Yeah. That's cool to see. It is cool. Like that. American-made carbon fiber, right? Yep. Heck, yeah. They make really good gravel and road bikes too. Ever. Yeah. So, uh, But the, the most crazy part of the, all of this silly season stuff. Yes. <laughs> Sam Pilgrim, the slope-style rider, he's off of NS Bikes. And he signed with High Bike. They're just people... an e-bike company. I'm kidding. They're not just. <laughs> they're not just an e-bike company, but yeah, they're like. And in the world of e-bikes, I wouldn't necessarily rank them like the highest. Like, but they're High Bike. But, but they're, they're high. <laughs> that's good. Yes, I'm always a fan of a dad joke. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> but they like the Turbo Levo by Specialized. That thing's like pretty legit. Yeah. Um, Scott has a good one. 
I don't know. You, you rode e-bikes this summer too. Yep. Uh, we can get into that one at another point. Um, but, sure. uh, the, the high bike, I've never thought of them being like really high quality when you look at them. I mean, they might be, I don't know, but when you look at them, they just look more spindly than like what you see from other brands. And then you put like a gnarly slope style guy on one and it makes me a little worried, but Highbike was actually one of the first to get into using the Bosch um, yes. crank-driven motor systems. And so they're, they've been in e-bikes longer than most other brands. They're like OG e-bikes. Yeah, they're OG. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they work closely with Bosch on a lot of things because they're both German. I don't so. – I wonder – I mean, they said they're going to make them a slope frame, which, I mean, for they make a lot of bikes, high bike. They do. A ton of bikes. So I'm sure it's pretty easy for them to just whip up a prototype for yeah. this guy. He tells them geometry, they make it – Easy, you know. And just so everybody knows, Highbike and LaPierre and Raleigh are all within the same group. Yes. So. Yeah. <laughs> have you seen the, have you seen the, uh, um, not Highbike, it's, um, they have a drop bar road bike from, uh, it's, a, it's a drop, bi- it's a drop bar e-bike road bike from LaPierre. Oh yeah. really? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, and it looks like a legit road. Like it doesn't. It, it's like look, a, It doesn't look like it has a massively huge down tube. It's no, like yeah. pretty well, it's kind of ridiculous. discreetly done. Yeah. Yeah, like so. BMC has a road bike that's an e-bike now, and obviously <laughs> Pinarello does too. <laughs> Anybody saw <laughs> that the terrible stuff? Oh my gosh! Did yeah. you hear about that? I Pinarello. did. Yeah, yeah. Pinarello. For those that are listening, Pinarello basically said, "We now make an e-bike road bike, and it's so for women can and it's so fast for women can keep up with men." So bad, <laughs> idiots. They um, apologized very quickly for that one, but still, damn <laughs> as they should have. Um, but anyways, those ones have like a massive down tube, like yeah. most e-bikes do. With that, yeah, that Raleigh one's pretty discreet. So, yeah. um, I just think it's crazy that you have a slope style guy signing, and it's not just like. He's going to be doing a bunch of slope competitions. Like the story is, he's going to be using e-bikes like to show off his talents, basically. Which like, okay, yeah, it's cool for him. Well, the weird kind of weird though. I the mean, weird like, thing is, would, they don't even make a slope bike yet. Yeah, and they're just going to whip one up. Yeah, you know. I mean, so, are they going to whip really, one up for production, an, or are they going to so whip yeah, this him is one? An, this is an e-bike signing, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So we have like a, a high-profile professional mountain biker that just made an e-bike signing. That's the first one. Or is in it a the last one? Way, that's kind of what he's done. Yeah, it's kind yeah. of crazy, right? Is that a trend? Do you think moving forward? It's weird. I don't know. It, time will tell. <laughs> we might have when just. I saw it. I was like, huh, "That's weird." <laughs> yeah, good. <laughs> Seems weird. It's just I, with time, man. We might just have dudes that are just racing e-bikes or using e-bikes only, and that's more entertaining. And then at that point, I don't know what happens with dirt bikes. I don't know. <laughs> it's all the same. So yeah. Yeah. Anyways, um, that's, that's the news. There, there's a bunch of other stuff and we're not going to get deep into the team rumors on the downhill side and all that, but people will be racing bikes maybe in different colors and, but they'll still have wheels under them next year. Hopefully. That's it. Questions. Let's get into that. Question. It's a ridiculous question. False. Well, that's debatable. First one is from PJ. Uh, PJ McFadden was his name, actually. Okay. I feel like I wonder if the P is for Patty McFadden because that's like the most Irish name I've ever heard. Okay. What do you think? <laughs> Patty James McFadden? Yeah, that's pretty Something. darn Irish, yeah. man. It's probably not his name. Anyways, he has a question. He says, okay, so I have been on a Yeti 5.5 for a year, and I love it. Prior to that, I had a Santa Cruz Tallboy LT, which I also love, but now it just doesn't get ridden, and I've decided it's time to sell it. With that being said, I will free up a little money to invest in some new stuff. 
Should I take the money and pick up some carbon wheels for the 5.5? There's a sweet deal right now on some MVM seventies on backcountry.com. Or should I invest in a trainer and power meter to make, to take my training to the next level? Additionally, what is the most economical way to get into the trainer power meter training game? Thanks in advance for any advice and love the podcast. I'm going to cover his second question first, and then we can all weigh in on the, on the first part, but okay. The most economical way to get into the trainer power meter training game is to get a stages power meter and then to get something like a Kurt Kinetic Road machine. Yes. Um, that's the best way to do it. Uh, it. For smart trainers, like we talked about this before, unless it's a Tax Neo, a Wahoo Kicker, or a Cyclops Hammer, don't get it. Yeah. It's not it, – because basically what you like, you, you think it's a smart trainer, so it's sweet. But that's like somebody on Craigslist Classifieds having like a shopping cart with like a motor strapped to it and saying they're selling a car. Like it's <laughs> okay. a crappy vehicle in the end, Okay, but it has a motor. Neat. Right. Yeah. But you'd never want to drive it. So your smart trainer it has smart control. Neat. You would never want to ride that thing yeah. if it's not a high quality one. So that's the best way to do it. Uh, if you have like a size medium bike, but the five, five has too long of a wheelbase, most likely you can get away with just getting a set of rollers. Um, the elite quick motions are the ones I would recommend. So that's the best way to do it. But that said, he has extra money. Should he spend it on carbon wheels? Should he spend it on the training setup? Let's say you. I, it depends what the, the price is on the Envies. If it's really good deal, if it's 22, 2300 for a set of the M70 high volumes. Mm-hmm. Sure. That's not a bad route to go. It's going to free up a little bit of weight. Um, but at the end of the day, I don't know. It sounds like you have other ideas, Jonathan. What do you think, Kurt? Mm, don't spend your money on carbon wheels. Hmm. I don't, I'm not a huge fan. I have to say I have a few sets. I have a few sets of carbon wheels and they're great and all, but when you put a rock through the side of one of them and you're stranded out in the middle of nowhere with yeah. a broken wheel, you can, you can bend aluminum at least one time. Mm-hmm. Once carbon breaks, you're walking. Yeah. And I just like the way where I ride, like I just, I mean, if you're just riding in a park and you, you know, like, or a few miles from your car, and then that's fine. But if you're going on a big ride, like, I'd save the money. Yeah. I'd spend it on somewhere else or just save it. Buy another bike. Yeah. Yeah, the M70s look like they're at about 1500 bucks. That is a good deal for Envies. Don't get me wrong. It's cheaper than what they normally are. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'd flip this thing on its head. I would say take that money that you have, and then I would say- Take it to the horse the- track. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Greyhounds actually. Yeah. yeah. Oh, for, dog track. Um, yeah. But no, I would say spend that on a proper bike vacation. There you go. That's a good, That's talk. a great idea. I like, that. like instead of putting money into that and, and I think, so let's look at your situation. I would say a trainer power meter is going to make your rides more enjoyable than M seventies because you'll be more fit and being more fit is always more enjoyable than being out of shape and being slow. Yeah. So that's something that Kurt's trying to be, you don't have to be discreet. He's all discreet about cracking open his, his IPA. Um, but I, I feel like the carbon wheels, man, doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Trainer power meter. That's going to make you faster. That'll make your rides more enjoyable. In the end, if you're going to invest into mountain biking, it should give you an ROI. And for me, whatever I is an ROI. That's yeah. It's a memory. You can't, you know, you, you can't buy memories like that. Yeah. Just, you know, straight overhand. You got to commit to those and yeah. make them happen. They are expensive. So if you took 1500 bucks that you were going to spend on those wheels, 
you could go and have yourself a pretty rad vacation. Yeah. Oh, yeah. If, even if you wanted to do one of the guided ones, like I think it's Western Skies does a bunch of them all over the West Coast. They do like Western hood, Spirit. Western Spirits. Yeah, yeah. They do yeah. They do Bend. They do Hood River. They do Sedona. They, they go all over the place and you can yeah. do fully supported. They'll make your food for you. All you got to do is pitch your tent every night and they move your stuff around. And those are, you know, I've got a bunch of friends who have done those and they say they're awesome. And yeah. those are like 16 to 1800 bucks. Or you can just go somewhere. You can drive to Moab and stay there and camp and do it a lot cheaper. Have fun. Like I I would definitely say make a memory out of it, man. That's actually a good idea. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Bet y'all weren't expecting that. No, we weren't. (laughs) thought I was going to say training and all that stuff. All right. Shreddy says, uh, greetings, fellow Shredlings. Love the podcast. Keep up the good work. Quick question for you guys. I have a spare non-boost 29er carbon wheel set and most of the rest of a bike that would go along with it lying around in a shed. I'm looking to build up a relatively cheap trail ready likes to party hardtail to show my kids the ways of the shred on our local trails and bike slash skate parks. I've been looking around quite a bit, but it appears the most or that most of the newer modern geometry 29er hardtails come in boost only. Any suggestion, oh wise ones. Uh, my first thing is sell the 29er carbon wheel set. Yeah. It sounds like we're all down on carbon wheel sets, like specifically here, but I would say sell that. And then I would say sell the other bike parts you have, and I would go for something like Specialized Fuse, or I would look at the Track Stash is the one they have. Yep. Even though those yeah. are plus, you're still you're riding right around. The Stash is a 29 plus. 29 plus, yep. And then or 27.5 plus, but and you can run 29 regular on it. I've you can run anything did, on yeah, it. Yeah, I've got That's a friend. The beauty of yeah, it. I, did, I have a friend who did Leadville on a stash last year. I got a stash. It's one of my favorite bikes. Yeah. yeah. That's what I would say is I would say sell those things that you can. And then, because the thing is, like, I know with a fuse, for example, you can, and I don't know if the stash has like a cheaper option, like, or is it like a pretty cheap or accessible bike? Oh, yeah. You bike. can get a, you can get a stash for like under two grand, like yeah. 1500 bucks or something like that. That's the cool part about those bikes. And they have really good geo on them. They're yeah. a ton of fun, mm-hmm. long reach, short stack, even though they have, you know, a, uh, big old balloon tires on there. There's still going to be short stack on there. Yeah. They're a ton of fun. So yeah, that's what I would say. We all agree. I agree. Nice. Look at this. United. Don says episode 38 had a bit about dogs. This guy had an experience. Ugh. He says, which reminded me of a very recent incident on a local trail. I came upon two hikers with their dogs. Both dogs were off leash as expected. I was leading uphill, maybe five miles an hour. Hikers and dogs were heading downhill. They were above me and hikers and I made eye contact beforehand. Their dogs were leading the way. I was heading to a point in the trail where I could stop before we all met up so I could let the dogs and hikers pass by. Before I could stop, one of the two dogs ran ahead to me and took a bite above my left ankle. Yikes. Then ran around behind me to the other side and took a bigger bite about midway between my ankle and knee. Uh, sorry for laughing. <laughs> Just crazy. That dog was after you. It says, I yelled to the hikers to control their dogs. One of the hikers yelled back something about being tired of mountain bikers claiming to own the trails. Some words were exchanged, and I'm certain we're not going to exchange Christmas cards this year. That's unfortunate. <laughs> it's terrible. Yeah. The dog broke skin at both bites. I kind of think I had a solid reason to be a little pumped up. And he's not saying like Ryan Dungey pumped. He's saying, you know, just, just, you know, he's a little angry revved up, I should say. Yeah. But after hearing you two talk about your dogs, I wonder what your thoughts are on etiquette in this case. Yell, no yelling, ignore and roll on. They look like they looked like responsible dog owners. I never once considered rabies or any sort of infection. The bigger bite is still sore about four weeks later. And I'm not going to lie. When I think about it now and then I get a little pissed off. I'd like to hear your thoughts. Nice podcast. Thanks. Yeah, those people may have looked like responsible dog owners, but they weren't. 
Yeah. I'm sorry. If, if your dog is off leash, it better be a good dog and good with people. Yes. The only reason Moose is off leash ever is because I know that he would never hurt yeah. another. He would never hurt a human. Yeah. He's not. Let aggressive. alone another dog. Yeah. He's not aggressive. No. If, and, and the thing is you can have, if your dog is aggressive, <clears throat> it's not like you have to keep your dog. I, I hate this. And people are like, my dog's aggressive. So I just keep them clammed up all day. No, you have I to can't get let them out there to get you, over that. You have to. Yeah. Um, so I know that the hikers aren't listening to this podcast, or at least I assume maybe they are. Maybe they are. I mean, everyone listens to it, yeah. but in, in this case, I would say those dogs should have e-collars. Yes. And I think that e-collars are something that way more people need to use. You need to get over the stigma that, you know, it's a shock collar and it's bad for your dog. Your dog is totally fine. If you send shock to it, he's okay with it. But these, these things have tones and vibration. Mm -hmm. And if they, some of them, like one of our dogs, he never once has to feel shock because yeah. when you hit vibrate, he acts like the world has ended. Mm -hmm. So all you have to do is just, if they need it, you hit shock once. And after that, they're going to be like, when I feel something around my neck, I'm going to listen. When that collar is I'm on. I'm going to behave. Yeah. Yes. So in this case, like with our dogs, I have them out there. I have the remote. I actually just glued a Garmin mount thing to the back of it. And then I just twist lock it into my Garmin mount on my bars. So then it's always right there and I can hit it. And then when I'm riding and my dogs are there, if my dogs, cause one of our dogs, she's more aggressive and she gets really nervous around. And it's really just the lack of confidence. Yeah. Right. Um, which is probably the case in this situation, a lack of confidence from this other dog. I just give her a vibrate and then it gives her a check. And then she looks back at me and she resets and she knows like, mm -hmm. okay, cool. He's here. I just need to put myself in check. Yep. It's totally fine. You never have issues. I think it's the owner's fault too. What's your stance on dogs on trails? Um, I don't, I don't have any like stance. Like I I'm fine with people walking with dogs off leash. That's no problem. Um, but like you said, granted, they better be under control. And this is, let me preface the statement by saying I grew up with dogs. I love dogs, but you know, I've been bitten by a dog before. And if a dog comes up to me and bites me, it's getting kicked. Oh yes. Straight up. Like 100%. I'm going to go off on it. And if the owner's there, I don't care. Like it's their responsibility. And, um, it's either going to get a face full of water or a swift kick. And if I'm bleeding, I'm calling animal control. Oh yeah. I mean, that's, you just have to throw down on something like that. That can't be tolerated. Yeah. That can't be acceptable. Yeah. Yeah. I because agree. those hikers didn't even care. You know, my girlfriend, yeah. she got attacked by a pit bull on a bike path six years ago, five years ago, um, ripped her hand open. You did like 16 stitches in, in her hand. Jeez. Dog was actually on leash, but the dog was so powerful. It just like yanked right out of the owner's hands and, and lunged at her. Yeah. Um, that kind of stuff can't be permitted. It like that's- be. Not in a social situation. Yeah. And I think that a lot of people would do better to consider an e-collar instead of a leash. Cause a lot of the time, as soon as that dog feels like when you choke up on that leash and it feels that you're trying to hold it back, it, it doubles down, it yep. triples down and it works 10 times harder Then it feels scared. Then it feels like it's, it's being held back and it's, it's bad. Um, I think that, you know, a leash is, is, is better than no leash if your dog is aggressive, but an e-collar, you might be surprised at how great your dog really is. And he doesn't feel like he's being choked or scared every time something comes up like that, you know? Yeah. So I like how the hikers said that they're sick of mountain bikers thinking <laughs> they own the trails. So it justifies them getting bitten by their dog. What, <laughs> yeah. what kind of reasoning what kind is of that? logic yeah. is that? It's right? not. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy, man. Uh, so Sam says, Hey guys, love the podcast. I'd love your thoughts on why Roval does what they do. 
Um, I have a 2018 S-Works. That's kind of a funny thing just to start out. Why with, does Revolve do <laughs> yeah. what they do? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I have a 2018 S-Works Epic Hardtail, which is an amazing weapon and has the newer, wider Revolve Carbon XC rims with 2.3 tires. My question is, a lot of carbon rim talk this week. He says, my question is, why do they cross the spokes but don't lace them over under? And why do they still run radial on the front offside? As far as I know, one or one other or no one else builds wheels like this, and it's just something that they're marketing. And he says, also, any tips or drills I can do on? Oh, actually, let's just answer the. first I want to answer this, yeah, and then we'll go into the next. So, yeah, go ahead. there are other companies that do this this lacing where one side is radial, one side is cross laced, yes. and that's Mavic. They call it Isopulse, and what that does is that gives you a stiffer wheel. Mavic does it on the drive side, mm -hmm. and then they also do it on the drive side of the rear, and then they do it on the front wheels as well. They'll gotcha. radial lace. Unless it's a disc wheel, they are getting into doing cross-lacing. So th the reason they do that is you get a stiffer transfer. You don't get as much flex in the wheel. So what Revolve's trying to do is get better braking characteristics out of the wheel so that when you hit the brakes and that rotor, it's a more solid contact to the actual tire and surface and traction on the ground. Hmm. Um so Mavic does it for basically they want when you torque on that cassette in the rear, they want instant. They don't want anything twisting up or anything like that between the power and the ground. Makes sense. So that's why they do that. Um, <clears throat> beyond that, what they're talking about with when they don't do the over under in the cross lacing is called intralacing. And um, Jeff Kendallweed, when he was with Ibis, um, he actually taught me this, what they do is when they just leave one, you know, your, your leading edge spokes on the outside and your trailing edge spokes on the inside mm -hmm. and nothing crosses, you actually get less harmonic vibration between okay. the two spokes, which keeps your spoke tension up. So you actually don't get the nipples loosening up nearly as much when you do intralacing. Wow. That's the, that's really the only reason for doing it. You just delivered. Yeah. Oh, so, solid. Thank you. Yeah, nice work. <laughs> That's actually how I build wheels is I interlace them. I don't do over, over, under. Yeah, I don't either. Yeah. I, I used to go over, over, under forever. And then it was it was actually Jeff at Ibis yep. who was like, you know, don't cross, you know, just keep the spokes not touching each other. Yep. It, it keeps the tension high. It doesn't, um, you know, vibration. And it's true. Like I never had to, the wheels that I had that weren't interlaced, Never had to trim once, and yeah. I, I beat them hard. Like, yeah, yeah so it works. The only thing is sometimes on certain hubs, you'll get into a situation where that spoke will sit really close to the first cassette cog because it's not being pulled under mm -hmm. the spoke you know, opposite of it. So that happens sometimes, but in most cases, a, a tiny little, you know, like a 0.8 millimeter um, cassette spacer will fix that. Or the 10 to, you know, the basically the 11 down to 10 speed spacer that comes Very with most freehub yeah. bodies. Easy to come That by. works perfect, yeah. Um, the other thing is Mavic also does an interlace. They do interlacing on all of their wheels as well. So there's no over, over, under, but those wheels all have their very specific max tall aluminum spokes. Crazy. So, yeah. I need, I need to learn about the world of wheel building more. Hmm. Well, there you go. Yeah. I can teach you. It says any tips or drills I can do on trying to keeping or trying to keep my shoulders from creeping up toward my ears while riding. I've noticed that I always do it on the road or off road. And I know there's no benefit for me to be doing it. Should I use that physio tape up and over to add resistance for a mental note to, to drop the shoulders? No on the physio tape. You just need to be more conscious about rolling your shoulders back. Think about why you're doing it. Well, uh, one... Do you ever notice that you do this, Kurt? What's up? 
that like that tension where you end up raising your shoulders up toward your ears? Um, I don't know if I raise my shoulders. I just know that I definitely like hunch forward a lot. I need to constantly like, mm-hmm. you know, stand back. Yeah, proper posture. Yeah, like Marine style. Yeah. You know? I know um, when I'm on the bike, I've seen a lot of people do this where they hunch up, and usually it coincides with as in- intensity increases, the ear to shoulder distance decreases. It's like a it's like a thing that they do. And I think that a lot of it um, in mountain biking, if you're going through technical terrain like that, usually what I find is you're not riding in the proper position and riding with your core engaged and riding with uh, you know um, your weight through your legs. In most cases, what you'll be doing in that is you'll be carrying excess tension through your chest, shoulders, upper back, and arms to make up for either a lack of tension or control and strength in your in your trunk or positioned wrong on the bike. Absolutely. The other thing also is you should be careful when you do hunch up like that, you're disengaging the shoulder socket. And so then you're more susceptible to shoulder injuries if you do crash. Good point. So, And I do see this much more commonly in XC. Yeah. And I see it a lot when you're descending because they stand up. And when they stand up, a lot of them have such a low stack height because they have an inverted stem and everything else that their arms are really low. And then they end up kind of like rolling forward. They have this weird balance that you're, 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 you feel like you have too much weight on your hands. So you feel like you should have it back in your legs, but you go through this weird position and then it ends up just putting you in a weird spot. So yeah. all, along those lines too, I, I, I can't recommend Lee McCormick's, uh, stuff enough, uh, his, his guidance through his book and through everything else in his clinics, he'll put you in a proper position so that you'd never need to do that. And you'll be amazed. Yeah. So that dude's awesome. So. I saw that video. Yeah. With you guys. Yeah. I think it was a video, right? It was. Yeah. That was pretty cool. You want to see a video of Jonathan crashing? <laughs> I'm kidding. Do you have one? Well, from our gravel ride on uh, Thanksgiving day. Oh yes. In the sand, you were trying to be cool and throw a rooster tails and you crashed. Yeah. That I haven't done anything with that video. It's there though. <laughs> Don't worry. Hold on to it. <laughs> I think uh, there is a video of me crashing on the pump track during that time. Too. I think there might be. Yeah. The sprinkler came on. It was a rogue sprinkler. And it had no permission, and it just came on, and I hit that berm hot. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Yeah. Good. Yeah, I kept going. Um, cool. All right, so that covers that one. Oh, and he says, P.S., bring on A1 Supercross. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. We need, to call, we need to call our friend Neil Stores. Yeah, we do. We need tickets. We need to call A1. <laughs> Neil, tickets. I'm just, I'm A1, just, VIP. I'm stoked for him. Monster uh, Girls. Neil's Go. got... <laughs> <laughs> Neil's kind of become like somebody that people know on the show. I've noticed that like a lot of podcast followers <clears throat> also follow Neil now. Yeah. Like, so he's kind of become like a person. Neil stores. Awesome, dude. Yeah. Congrats on the, on the big gig. He's working with a PR agency. So he'll be representing monster energy, Kawasaki and Mr. Tomac. So yeah. it's pretty fun. So pretty cool stuff. And I'm sure you are super busy, Neil. You're probably not mentioning or listening to this since this is the biggest week of your year every year. So but anyways, yeah, I'm stoked. But with that said, we made him big. So therefore he (laughs) owes us tickets to every Supercross race. Are you, um, so the dirt bike riding you're doing, Kurt, is, is more trail riding and it's all trail. Yeah. Not Supercross stuff. Do you you even watch Supercross? Are you interested in that stuff? Um, not really. Yeah. I mean, I'm blown away by what they can do. I always have been, but I've just, I don't know. I only have limited time to pay attention to other things. And it's just, that's not one of my priorities. You know, it's, I appreciate it though. I grew up doing that my whole life. Loved it. You know, spent a lot of time into it and everything else. Last year I tried to, I've never done a fantasy sports thing Mm -hmm. on it. I'm not a big sports guy. Um, people probably think I'm ridiculous for this, but like I I follow soccer and that's basically it. Right. I don't even follow soccer. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but that's basically it. Uh, but 
like I couldn't even do, I tried to do fantasy supercross last year. Like a bunch of my friends were like, Hey, you should do it. Wait, how do you do fantasy supercross? You pick your riders and then they have odds based on each rider. And based on their odds, you get awarded different points and you have a roster that you can pick. And basically an allotted amount of points that you can use each week to, to pick those people. It's basically it. Cool. Yeah, I so, definitely don't have enough time in my life for that. I did not at all, man. <laughs> I tried. I lasted one <laughs> round. And then after that, I was like, yeah, way too much, man. Can't do this. So or desire. Time or desire. Oh, it was way too much, man. Took the fun out of it, too. If I'm going to watch this stuff and just want to relax and watch, watch it. it. Yeah, exactly. I got yeah. on a stretch. Like on our way back. in my head. Yeah. yeah. Like on our way back from, uh, from Sea Otter. Yeah. We watched it. Yeah. I was driving. Yes. You watched it. I watched it. was it. on yeah, in the yeah. forerunner though. Like it's, it's, it's ridiculous. Like I, I find myself cheering for the, or like not, I, I'm cheering one moment for the dude in 17th out of 20. And then I'm like cursing him and wishing that he, you know, some bad would befall him because he's dropped back to 18th. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. I'm yeah. taking this too seriously. Need to need to relax. So yeah. not good. Um, all right. Last question from Michael or Mikkel. I'm not sure how you would say it um, because he's from Denmark. He says, greetings from Denmark. I just recently found your podcast and have started from the beginning and have reached episode 22 until now. Keep going. Uh, you got a ways to go yet. He says, I don't necessarily agree with you all the time, but I learn a lot of new stuff every time. Well, that's good. Agree to disagree. Yes. <laughs> yes. Rob let's Burgundy do that. once said. Yep. Yeah. He says, my question for you is a bit special. My eight-year-old son is racing cross-country mountain biking on a competitive level and has until now been using a rigid fork on a hardtail. However, on the bike he'll be using next season, he will have a RockShox SID fork on there. How do I adjust it for a kid who cannot give usable feedback? Best regards, Michael. He's eight years old, keep in mind. So he's going to be riding a RockShox SID eight years old. Yeah. How would you, how have you set up suspension for kids before? Steve? You know, honestly, for the most part, you kind of have to watch them and watch how the suspension reacts. Obviously you can get the, the sag dialed with them. You don't need any feedback for that. You can feel about 80% of what you need to make in rebound and compression adjustments yeah. just by doing it in a parking lot. And you can do that yourself. That's a good point. If you're, if you're out riding with your son and you notice certain things about how the fork is working, if it's, you know, if it's stacking up on him over multiple bumps, if it's, you know, bouncing back super fast and the kid's getting bucked around, you can make those adjustments based on what you're seeing. Yeah. You don't have to have the, you know, the, the audible feedback from your son saying, Hey dad, it's doing this and I don't like it. How do you do it, Kurt, when Jerry and all of his Sandy bros show up and they have no clue what they're doing in Downeyville? And you have to set them up on these bikes. Did you say Gary or Larry? Jerry. Oh, Jerry. Jerry. Yeah. Gary, Larry, and Jerry. Yeah, <laughs> all, all, three, all of them. All three of them show it's, up. It's the Sendy crew right there. Yeah. Um, what do you do to help them? Because they aren't giving you usable feedback, right? Like they aren't saying rebounds just all wrong. They have no clue. So what do you do to help them there? Um, like Steven said, I mean, SAG is number one and, and, and easy and just like mid range, you just set the rebound in the middle of the range, figure out what the limits are, right? Like how many clicks and then just start in the middle. Mm -hmm. And usually in the middle it's adequate. Like, you know, especially if a lot of times people don't know better, man. <laughs> they just don't know better. They just it don't matter. know better. Yeah. And then yeah. they ride and they're like, Oh, it was fine. And then like, <laughs> and you, and then they get someone who actually knows suspension, and they're like, "Oh, this is actually way better." Yeah. But it was fine before, right? Exactly. You know, so um, I don't know. I I don't tend to be a rocket scientist or overthink things with suspension. Um, as long as the fork isn't diving too too quickly mm -hmm. under braking, or yeah. you know, I don't feel like um, it's the rear end is like kicking me up in the air when I hit a jump. Like, right? You know, 
I don't get too too into it. I just Kurt's pretty easygoing if you guys haven't figured yeah. it out yet. Yeah. He just kind of goes with the flow. Pretty he much. makes coffee tables out of pallets and things like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I make sheds out of pallets. I made, a, I made an 11 by, or was it? Nine by twelve. That's right. Ten by thirteen shed out of pallets. It was a pretty good looking shed too, actually. Yeah, it yeah. Good. It looks really. It's good. solid, man. Yeah, I fit a lot of bikes in that thing and <laughs> built the whole thing for six hundred bucks because I had to, you know, actually like buy structural wood too. Yeah, yeah. But um, shoot, it would have cost me four grand at Home Depot. Yeah, yeah. way to go. I there like you go. that. Yeah, I don't make. Did some, you guys? Did you steal those pallets from uh, Patagonia? I didn't steal them from Patagonia. Did you take them from Patagonia? I took them from Patagonia because they put them out back, and these are organic, free-range, you know, humanely treated (laughs) pallets. Oh, that's good. Yes, there's... Yeah, and they're sustainable. You know, sustainable. They're not treated with chemicals. <laughs> yeah. Some pallets are, um, and they were perfect forty-eight by forty-eight. So I perfect. could just like do a perfect, you know, six by twelve. That works. It worked Bam. out great. There you go. Or eight by twelve, or whatever the hell. I can't yeah. do math. Forty-eight, forty-eight, <laughs> ninety-six, eight feet. Yeah, eight foot by twelve foot. There you go. Uh, the one thing, the last thing I wanted to share on this with uh, your your son is once you get him set with SAG. It really, I think that the majority is going to be taken care of. However, if he's on a rock shock sit and he's eight years old, I assume that he's probably pretty small for his bike. So just one thing to keep out, keep an, keep out like watch on is he's probably not going to be able to compress the fork a whole lot, a whole lot. Yeah. So you're going to be running really low pressure, but then also on sag, like when you're adjusting sag, just keep an eye out for that. Like he's probably got his weight so far in the center and it's so little weight on this bike that yeah. he won't be able to compress the fork a lot. So if you actually set it up right, it might be like 15 PSI on the fork and, and then it's bottom not really sitting, easily. Yeah. And it's not going to sit all the way out in its travel. It's actually going to just be diving, just sitting there. That's super important. Yeah. Cause then you have a bike that's riding like a stink bug. The whole Unless time. it's the new, is it the new RS 124 inch? Mm. That doesn't exist yet. That would be sweet. I don't think it'll ever exist. <laughs> My suggestion is maybe just put a bigger front tire on and air down a little more and there then leave go. the rigid fork on it. And I think it's going to be better for the kid than putting that's a suspension good. fork on it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Personally, that's what I would do. That'd be a good option. All right. That covers the questions for this week. You can submit those, remember, at mtbpodcast.com. We have a bunch that we haven't, uh, that we like a ton that we didn't get to. Should we do a questions part three episode? I think soon? we're going to have to do yeah. that. Yeah. I think I'm fearing that we're going to have to make that like a weekly thing and this becomes two podcasts a week. And then I don't know what I do with family time, but. Me either. <laughs> My dog will miss me. Your moose will miss you. Yeah. My new girlfriend will miss me too. True, true yeah. story. So, there's that. Um, anyways, uh, with that though, submit your questions and we'll go through them and we'll answer them. We will. Time for the business. It's business time. It's business. It's business time. The business this week is one that's been regularly requested, I would say. From, from people, they want us to discuss this, and it's with, it's with good reason because this affects every single person listening to this right now, all of us. This was regularly requested? It is. Yeah. Yes. A lot. Yes. People want to uh, not only hear us break this down, but they also want us to put this out and utilize our platform to educate more people, and we want to do the same thing. Absolutely. So that's really why we're talking about this. Um, really, what we're talking about is... Bikes and wilderness in short, but uh, HR House Ruling 1349, Human Power Travel and Wilderness Areas Act. So th- for those that don't know what that is, or actually before we even get into that, Kurt, can you help break down what f- 
wilderness is. And when we say wilderness, we're saying capital W, federally designated wilderness, right? So yep. can you break down what that is for people? Because a lot of people don't know what that it's is. Just, it's, a, it's a land designation. It's the highest um, land designate protection of land, federal land that can that you can get. Um, it was an act of Congress, Wilderness Act of 1964. Um, and there's, you know, certain restrictions on that, that designation. Um, they can be found within the Forest Service, BLM, National Park Service, or, uh, what's the other one? Um, wildlife. Fish and wildlife. Fish and wildlife. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Fish and wildlife. So that's kind of the the short of it. That's what it is. It's a, it's a very, it's the highest level of land, public land protection in the United States. That's federal. Yep. Um, I'll break down, uh, this, I believe was, uh, geez, who was ended up quoting this. This is from a, a wilderness advocacy group. Forgive me for not having it, but they stated it perhaps in a more dramatic way. An they always do. <laughs> an area where the earth and its community of life are untrammeled by man where man himself is a visitor who does not remain. In other words, what they're getting at with this is that they, do, they don't want it to be commercialized, utilized, or developed. They want it to maintain its wild state, right? So that, that's can visit there, the goal. Right. that's it. Yeah, and that, that's it, right? Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of different wilderness areas. So here where we, we're actually very close to a, a to federally, federally designated wilderness right now. Uh, the, Look at it. Yep, Mount Rose Wilderness. And uh, we basically bump up against that line, bump up against that line every time I ride pretty much there. Yep. Yep. And it tells me that I no bikes at this point. That's it. Horses and hikers, sure, but no bikes, right? Uh, there are a lot of people that come across different spots that have had, you know, wilderness or that, that want to ride in wilderness areas and haven't been able to or have had wilderness recently uh, declared, like, for example, in up north of Ketchum, the Boulder White Clouds mm -hmm. area. Yep. And uh, that's caused some issues too. Um, but I think that before we get into to the political aspect and everything else, which I guess inherently we will with this, but who defines what wilderness is and what, what area is wilderness, federally designated wilderness, and what isn't? Who actually does that in the end? Well, who defines like the boundaries yeah, and exactly. like designated? Well, I mean, it comes from the public. It's, it's public driven. Um, and it has to be voted on. So it follows the political process. Oh, yeah. yeah. There's a long political process, but yeah. ultimately for anything to be designated as a, as a federally protected wilderness area, it's an act of Congress to do that. Yes. So, and this is something that, um, this isn't like a little town hall meeting happens. No. And then you, uh, you actually, you know, then he knows the word of his constituents, your representative, and then your representative votes. And it happens like that. It's a very simplified and unrealistic way to actually think about how this really works. There's a ton, a ton of interest in wilderness areas. Yeah. The reason for that is in a lot of cases on one side of the fence, you have people that are you, uh, so let's, let's not call them extremists, although they're viewed like that from the other side, but they are <clears throat> conservationists, but they're conservationalists, forgive me, but they are so to such a degree that they would rather just block everything off and not even <clears throat> allow recreation. On the other side of things, you have the, the group of people that see that land, see minerals, see resources, see commercial opportunities, and they say, we're just wasting that space. We could be making money off of that. Yeah. yeah. 
which is many times justified through the ways that they say, well, yeah, I mean, we could build great trails. We could have great places to stay. We could, you know, in other words, allow you to recreate better by developing it. Whereas the other side is saying, keep it wild. Don't touch it. So there's a lot of interest in there. Commercial interest, a lot of money involved, and it comes from powerful lobbying groups on one side, like the Sierra club. And then on the other side comes from large, very large multinational corporations. Whether it be, you know, uh, resources, minerals, tourism, you name it, it could be any, any group that wants to develop it. So what, when wilderness in an area is designated as federally designated wilderness, that was redundant, but what are the restrictions in place? What cannot happen in those places, Kurt? Um, it's probably easier to say what can happen okay. than what can happen because everything virtually can't happen, but <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> there are a few things that can happen. What can happen? Um, right. Well, as of right now, so anything that predates the Wilderness Act, any mining claim or any kind of like um, operation that was around before the Wilderness Act existed within any designated wilderness is still grandfathered protected. Okay. Um, but generally speaking, the only forms of access that are permitted um, are what would be considered non-mechanized. Okay. Um, mechanical transport, quote unquote. However, you can still backcountry ski. Mm-hmm. And which I'm pretty sure mechanical that's mechanical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can still use, you know, anti-shock hiking poles, which are mechanical. So there's lots of just little, Nike shocks too. Yeah. But you can horse, you know, horse, sweet, sketchers. sweet hiking shoes, <clears throat> Nike shocks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's, and so, and I think that's what, you know, irks like people who are looking for reasonable access is like, well, you're making all these exceptions to this mechanical transport rule, but this form of mechanical transport is, is banned. So, um, but yeah, so hiking, Horseback, those are permitted. Um, I mean, it's there's not much more. I mean, you can't even have a, you can't even maintain a trail with a chainsaw in wilderness. You have to bring in a handsaw yeah. and cut. If a four foot diameter tree falls on the middle of a trail, you have to handsaw that out. Yeah. Why? I don't know. I just think that's kind of antiquated, but yeah, that's the rule. I get that. Um, yeah, I can I can understand that. I assume that. And I assume that the, there's a fear of a slippery slope on one side uh, that stops that that causes such like a, uh, an absolute blocking of that. Um, but at the same time, I, I just want to read some other stuff. This is we're going to be touching on a few different representatives that that are currently involved in this debate, and then jumping back, you know, many years back as well. But. Um, I'm just quoting here. Uh, So non-motorized bicycles were allowed in wilderness areas from the inception of the act until 1977 when the U.S. Forest Service reinterpreted the law to ban them. Do you know what was behind that reinterpretation and why that was, why bikes were banned? Was there some type of problem they were trying to stop? Well, you know, it's funny you mention that because Frank Church, who's a Democrat from a senator from Idaho, who was one of the found one of the founders of the Wilderness Act, one of the core people um, in 19 in the late 70s and 78 or no 67 or 68 he sent a memo to the Forest Service it was a public memo it's a public memo you can read it I mean you can find its public information talking about how he was worried that the Forest Service was taking interpretation of restrictions too too stringently 
Yes. And it was going against the original intention of the Wilderness Act. He even said we would never have written the laws we did. Correct. If that was if he knew what he knew then. Correct. And so and that and that was in a in a um in a in a publication that quote that you mentioned. Um, I think it's called Wilderness in a balanced like management land management like you know, yeah environment. Yeah, and I don't have the title with me. So anyway. He was concerned that the Forest Service, and he quote-unquote said purist doctrine, that they were over kind of interpreting. They're over-interpreting is Over-interpreting and yeah. over-restricting the original intent of the Wilderness Act, that it wasn't intended to be this restrictive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, <clears throat> you know, in 1977, I think there was just, I don't know exactly what the, uh, the catalyst was. However, what's interesting is that in 1980... The Rattlesnake Wilderness Act um, of 1980 specifically mentions that bicycles are a primitive form of transport like hiking and horseback that are compatible with the wilderness ideal. That was the only time that Congress specifically mentioned bicycles in black and white um, on this topic. And they thought that by Congress thought that bicycles were compatible with wilderness. Now remember, Congress never has voted to ban bicycles from wilderness ever. Right. This was an administrative management decision by an unelected official. This was not an act of Congress that banned bicycles from wilderness. There's a bureaucrat. And in the end, that's yes. what we had. Some yep. they were making the decisions instead of Congress. And technically uh, they weren't even supposed to. Right. Yeah, in fact, they say to this, so um, Congress meant to exclude roads, permanent infrastructure, and motors, not human-powered visitors who leave no permanent trace. Ted Stroll said that, and he's the president of STC, which is the Sustainable Trails Coalition. We'll get to them in just a bit. said, thus, H.R. 1349 does not materially amend the Wilderness Act of 1964. Rather, it restores the act to its original meaning. Republican uh, Republican Representative McClintock passed the panel on how the bicycle ban was originally implemented. So the ban was strictly imposed by an unelected bureaucrat. Is that correct? And McClintock answered yes. So um, then Stroll responded, conservationists, or and then Stroll responded to that. It says conservationists like Stroll and key legislators are in key legislative backers of the original law, including Senator Frank Church, questioned. If the if it was actually being implemented as it was originally intended to be, and I think that's something that um, we should have a very clear, very clear understanding on that this was something like you stated that Congress never voted against bicycles. It wasn't that way originally. It wasn't that way at any point. This is just simply a decision of from a, from a bureaucracy that they made an interpretation, and then as a result, so it's blocked. Yeah, the the HR thirteen forty nine has a very very narrow focus. Like a lot of people want to say that this bill, if it gets passed, is going to open Pandora's box, and all of a sudden, next thing you know, ATVs and dirt bikes and extraction and all exploitation of wilderness is going to happen. Read the bill; it's two paragraphs long. It's real short, short. very and short, and it's very pointed. And all it does is it restores the management of wilderness to what it was between 1981 and 1984. So after the Rattlesnake Wilderness Act of 1980, the the Forest Service even themselves in, in, in public memos have mentioned that they thought maybe they were a little bit too restrictive in their management. So in 1981, they allowed bicycles on a case-by-case basis. Um, that went until 1984. And then finally, through 
uh, I think, I mean, it's, it's pretty clear that it was, you know, lobbying on the behalf of conservation groups. They wanted to put nip, kind of nip it in the bud and, and, and close it out permanently. But from 81 to 84, bicycles were permitted and they were permitted on a case by case basis, letting the local management land manager make the decision on, you know, their area based on traffic and usage and which is reasonable. And yeah. so that all HR 1349 does is restore management to that when it existed in 1981 to 84. It's not going to rewrite the Wilderness Act. It's not going to allow motorized transportation, all these other things that the fear mongers say. It's not true. Right. Um, it's just bringing it back closer to what Congress originally intended for the Wilderness Act. Right. Based on public document, I mean, the documents are there. This isn't magic. This isn't quote unquote fake news. It's, I mean, look at the, look at the public memos. Yeah. Read what Frank Church stated. Read what even um, Zonheiser, one of the founders of the Wilderness Act says about, you know, like access. This isn't about just conservation. Yeah. Like in the first paragraph of the Wilderness Act, it talks about for the enjoyment of the future generations of Americans enjoy what does enjoyment mean? You can't appreciate something if you can't experience it. Right. And of course, you know, people who talk against bikes will say, well, you're not restricted. You can just leave your bike at home and walk in. Well, that's what well, you're going to make that decision for someone. I mean, that's human powered transportation. We're talking about like, yeah. what if I said, well, you can just leave your hiking boots and take your bike into wilderness. I mean, we live in the United States. I think freedom of choice within reason is one of the tenets of our country. Like, we should be able to have the freedom of choice as long as it's human powered to be able to enjoy these public lands. Yeah, I agree with that. You know, even if you go back and look at so Teddy Roosevelt during the time in which which really we were getting into this whole thing was being considered a concept of federally designated wilderness. You know, he mentioned that this was that. Well, I, I actually I, I can't remember if this specifically applies to wilderness, but I believe it does. But he mentioned that the benefit of what they were doing at that time, because it was seen as extremely unpopular at that time, what they were doing. Mm -hmm. But he said it was for those that are in the womb of time. Right. It's future generations. Yep. He's looking down the road. And he knew that through designating these areas as a spot where people, they, were, they would be preserved and conserved, that you would then be able to utilize those spots. I mean, let's be frank. Let's look at that. Why would it be for the womb of time? Why would it be for future generations if the point was to block it off to, to people and just leave it completely alone? Right. It's, uh, you know, recreation should be taking place, responsible recreation. Um, so you mentioned a case-by-case -case basis. I guess let's get into more STC, what Sustainable, Trail, or Sustainable Trails Coalition is, what they're working on, and then we can get into that case-by-case -case basis. So what is STC first? Um, they're just a grassroots-funded um, special interest group. Okay. Um, they're not a nonprofit so that they do have an unlimited amount of lobbying power if they need to kind of like Sierra club or the wilderness society. Mm -hmm. Um, they are 100%, like I mentioned, grassroots funded. So all the money they've raised, they've only existed two and a half years and they've managed to still manage to get two bills introduced in two and a half years. It's pretty impressive. Pretty impressive with, especially with what limited funds. Um, they have, and unfortunately there have been no major bike industry brands that have gotten behind this. This has been completely funded through private donations mm -hmm. and private individuals, which I find kind of sad that the bike industry can't just like maybe 
come to the table and, and figure out a way. This is about like preserving access for our sport. Like with every new wilderness designation that happens, we lose access. Yeah. yeah. And we're get, we'll get into IMBA in a bit and, and also the, the other players in this, in this industry that aren't taking an active role. So there, one concern that I see with STC is the fact that, um, and this is one that's brought up and it's usually brought up in the context of a slippery slope, mm -hmm. but within that, they don't just say to allow, you know, bikes in wilderness on a case by case basis, but they also mention wheelchairs and they mention strollers mm -hmm. and those sort of things. Yeah. How is it guaranteed that, that in the end STC actually has the interest of mountain bikers in this case? And it isn't, for example, uh, something that's actually, you know, driven by who knows some type of wheelchair or stroller manufacturer, something that goes around family recreation period. That's looking to develop resorts or something else like how do we guarantee that that's not, they're not trying to pry open that door? Um, I personally know almost everybody on the board of STC and they're all mountain bikers. There we go. Yeah. That's an easy answer. Yeah. I don't, I don't think they're advocating <laughs> for strollers. It doesn't make sense to, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I see that commonly. It shouldn't be restricted, but I don't think they're going to be like, they're including it. Yeah. yeah. You know? Yeah. It, when, I guess with- Game carts, hunters, like if you're out in the middle of nowhere- Game cart's pretty handy. Yeah, you want to hide that or hike a piece that of wood on wheels. Back. Really, is that going to, you know, you could degrade leap. the wilderness experience? A piece of wood with wheels. I mean, yeah, yeah. Exactly. could be aluminum too. But yeah, make them out of wood wheels, and you could leave that there, <laughs> yeah, and it's right. still part of the wilderness, right? <laughs> um, so this uh, STC is done. You mentioned opposition, and I think unfortunately one of the biggest oppositions that STC faces, this bill faces, in the end is the lack of participation in the industry, but not just with key players, but also individually with mountain bikers too. Um, so I guess let's just go over the political process really quick. Th this has gone through the Senate. Now it's going to the House. No, it has right? not gone through the Senate. Has not gone through it has the gone Senate. Through a sub it has gone through the House Committee on Natural Resources. Okay. Which it has to go through a committee like that before it can hit the floor of the House. It so has to now be, yeah. it has to go to a vote on the floor of the House of Representatives. If that passes, then it goes to the Senate. And if that passes, then the president signs it and it becomes law. Okay. So with that in mind, how a, uh, how a politician knows in which direction he should vote on something? Mm -hmm. um, let's, just, let's just share our thoughts on that. Stephen, how does a politician cast his vote? How does he base that? In other words, what does he base his vote or his decision on? Do you want the political science 101 yes, version of that? and then I want reality. Okay, so <laughs> political science 101 says that he takes letters and phone calls and emails from his constituents, and he gathers what a majority of his, of his voters want. To represent them. To represent. He is representing their interests. So what is their interest? What does a majority of his constituency want? Then he votes that way. So before we go any further, <clears throat> that requires people to call. That requires people to send letters, send emails, yes. to be communicate because they aren't going to be proactive in reaching out to every single person and asking nope. their opinion. No, not it's at up all. to the constituents to communicate up. Yes, that's how that works. That's how it works. That's so, a representative democracy at its best. <clears throat> with Boulder White Clouds Wilderness. When th there was a lot of political drama with that on how it ended up getting expedited and shifted around and changed and then designated as wilderness. Mm -hmm. However, um, IMBA 
when the the final vote was coming down, it was coming down to the wire. IMBA sent out basically like an emergency call to arms, sent out the message to everybody. And I remember this. It was a pretty big splash from a lot of different companies and a lot of different people. They were saying, hey, just so you know, they're going to lose a ton of trails north of Sun Valley. 880,000 acres? It's less. I think it's 257. I thought it was in the 800. Sorry. Yeah, 257,000 acres. And they ended up closing that, or they ended up, they said, it's going to get closed down. We need to act. We need to write letters. They had 187 people reach out. Which is nothing. That's it. Yeah. So if you're a politician and you have on one side the Sierra Club with hundreds of thousands of members, and you have other, like you mentioned, on bordering on religiously fanatical mm-hmm. groups that, yep. that, that, are, that are seeking to protect wilderness, yep. in their mind protect wilderness right. in a different way than, than perhaps is, is reality represents, right. those people absolutely, absolutely representing their side. They have a loud voice and it comes from sure. many sources. Oh, yeah. yep. So when mountain bikers send, send 182 letters, yeah. what is that politician supposed to think? Because, you know, Jerry politician, he doesn't really care about mountain bikes. He doesn't care about anything like that. He, this is going to boil down to a numbers game or we can get into the more jaded and perhaps more realistic side of politics mm-hmm. where they're looking to actually benefit themselves yeah. through these decisions or other you know, other companies that are supporting them, whatever else it might be. Yeah. Boulder White Clouds, though, was a very unique situation. I mean, basically, it was a total political just a mess. Um, the reason why that happened, I mean, credit to Imba on the process to the point where they were actually going to preserve it as a national monument. And so mountain bike access was going to be preserved. Mm-hmm. Obama was going to sign a national monument, you know, like, kind of like what we're going through with Bears Ears right now, the president has executive order through the Antiquities Act to preserve land anywhere with a signature. And that's what was going to happen. But then the Republican senator, forget his name, but from Idaho, Mm -hmm. found out that Obama was going to, you know, designate this thing National Monument. He had worked forever to protect it as wilderness and then, like, was, was able to motivate the base to say, we can't let Obama designate this as a national monument. We got to make it wilderness. And then bam, it became wilderness almost like overnight. And so Imba was, they were basically screwed over. I mean, they, they did what as much as they could do in that situation, but they were a victim of a political game. This is the reason why bike access and wilderness must be reinstated because we're victims of a political game every time when it plays that way. Yeah. Like when you're 100% access locked out, that is a zero win game. I don't care what, if you preserve five miles of trail, you lose 200,000 acres of land. Mm -hmm. That's a loss. That is not a win. Yeah. Yeah. And so we have to look at this like differently. We have got to be able to have, I think we are, the mountain bike community for a lot of what we do, especially volunteerism, mm-hmm. number one trail volunteer by far, by far, like mountain bike community volunteers a lot of hours on the trails. When was the last Nationwide. time you saw the the hikers or equestrian users getting outside to go work on? We these see. I mean, we do a lot of trail work up in the Lost Sierra. We see a lot of different trails being worked on, and we see the volunteer groups. And there are different groups that come out by by and far number one. By far, mountain bikers. Yep. And that's I think you can ask any trail organization across the country and they'll and they'll 
generally agree that mountain bikers are very, very good when it comes to volunteering. Yeah. And so if we're this huge volunteer labor force, we deserve an equal seat at the table as a human powered user group. Yeah. Why are we 100% locked out of a, of a public land designation? Yeah. Right. That was never intended for us to be locked out in the first place by Congress. Yeah. And, and something perhaps to help people's perspective, when we say public lands, you need to understand that that's your land if you live in the United States of America. Well, yeah. So I, one other thing I want to add to that, though, is, you know, the people who live at ground zero of a land designation are truly, that's truly like their backyard. Yeah. That is where they recreate. That is where they live. And what really irks me, because I do deal with this a lot and where I live and where I work, is that a lot of decisions about the lands that are in remote areas where these communities are struggling to make an economy, a lot of the decisions are made in Washington, D.C. or New York City or in San Francisco in these major urban areas where a lot of these decision makers sit behind a desk and push papers and have never maybe have ever even been in wilderness in their life. Yeah. They have no idea the dynamic of the local community that they're affecting yeah. when they push this kind of policy and try to lock out, you know, human-powered use. Like, yeah. Mountain biking is a huge economic engine for mountain communities. And when you, nothing could be a bigger death knell for sustainable recreation-based economy than a wilderness designation. Yeah. Like a place like Joseph, Oregon, great example, gorgeous city, not a city. It's a town. It's a tiny little town preserved in history. Beautiful, pristine. It's like Pennsylvania Dutch country set at the foot of like the BC Rockies. It's just oh, unbelievable. Yeah but it's surrounded by wilderness and you can't ride your mountain. I mean, and, and as a result, there are like no mountain bike trails there. Yeah. And it could be this incredible place for riding a mountain bike. Mm -hmm. um, but again, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's sad. I mean, that reasonable case by case access based on usage and based on, you know, sensitivity, habitat sensitivity and, and, and based on like um, just, the local conditions should yeah. dictate. Yeah. You know, my, my whole life, I was I grew up when our fence bordered on BLM land, Bureau of Land Management land. And our whole lives, we referred to it as BLM. And I really wish that when I was young, that in our family, we would have, we would have referred to that as our land. And I think that if we recognize that responsibility to take care of that land and, to, and that that land is ours and we need to represent the best interests of that land and represent the best interests of those in our community to use that land appropriately, I feel like it would have been a totally different experience. Yeah. And I, I, I know, I know, I'm, I'm, I'm very okay with making this generalization. You can call me out on it. But I know that that is not the perspective of the vast majority of people in this country. Yeah. We look at that land and we just assume it's dead space. Right. Or if we recreate in that land, we usually assume, oh, I guess this is just, you know, city land or it's managed by government. That's your land. Mm -hmm. Yep. That's your land. It's protected um, by your tax dollars. Exactly right. So we, you know, we, especially as mountain bikers are great at working on trails, but do we really consider that the, these lands are our lands and that we should pr protect them as such? Uh, it's, it, I think that we could use a shift in how we think about that. I'm going to go back to what you were talking about with a seat at the table. Yeah. Because that's that's uh that's not like a just a table where a kid can hop up to it. That's that's a pretty 
that's a pretty, um, there's a high barrier of entry to get a seat at that table when you have other players like the Sierra Club and everything else. Shouldn't be, though. Shouldn't be. Ideally, Why should no. it be? Just because they have a bigger, um, a bigger, you know, special interest group with more money? That Does that make them more important as a, uh, a, a user group? Unfortunately. Land? Unfortunately. Idealistically, no. Idealistically, no. But <clears throat> so we shouldn't, we shouldn't accept defeat in that regard. Yeah. Yeah. Ever. Yeah. Which we have. We have. And even IMBA, which is, you could argue, the largest represent, or representative organization for mountain bikers. And <laughs> once again, we're talking about in theory here, but they should be the ones that are representing the voice of mountain bikers at this table. Correct? Yeah. They've accepted defeat in that very same position. Like you mentioned, considering a wilderness designation where you might, like, for example, with Boulder White Clouds, when they were, or forgive me, they, they were talking about with it, where it, with it being a national monument, sure, it would have been somewhat of a win because we could have preserved mountain bike trails, but that was not guaranteed in that situation either. No, it wasn't guaranteed, but no, but that, I, you know, I don't know all the details, but I mm -hmm. do believe that Emma did, you know, negotiate the protection of Ants Basin and all these like epic places to ride in the Boulder White Clouds area. So then let's fast forward to now then, because that's perhaps a more appropriate, I guess, uh, context for what we're talking about here. Now we have a situation where they aren't, they aren't, they're okay with conceding and they're basically okay with not representing that voice of mountain bikers. Imba has accepted defeat to the point where they're randomly getting thrown scraps. Yeah. They're not even near the table. Yeah. At all anymore. Well, what's funny is if you talk to the STC lobbyist, um, he, and he's in DC all the time, uh, talking, right. They got two bills introduced into Congress within a two and a half year period. So he's shaking hands and talking to people when he talks to elected officials mentions it, but they say who? Yeah. No one knows who they Nobody are. Nobody knows who they are. So yeah. they, they talk a big game, but they're not as big of a force as they say they are. No. Yeah. And meanwhile, what we're doing is mountain bikers are paying them to be that voice they're donating their money mm -hmm. and we're putting our trust, which is even more damaging than our money. We're putting our trust that they're going to be the ones that are actively representing these, or, you know, our interests and yeah, it's not lobby. happening. They don't lobby. Imba doesn't, they're a 501c3. So they, they have a limitation on their lobbying capacity. Um, I think it's like $400,000 a year is this, the amount of money they can spend to lobby. Um, look at their, their, their 501c3 public records. Look at their records. They choose to spend almost nothing on lobbying. They don't lobby. That's the thing. And and is that an efficient organization for us? I don't. I you know it's not. I don't know. I, well, if you look at STC with their lobbying, what but have they done? Very. I think one thing that people have to remember here: this is STC is not a replacement for IMBA. So no, when I see people not. say, "I'm giving my money to STC," forget about IMBA. That's great that you're giving your money into STC, but that does not replace what IMBA yeah. does. Like IMBA does, a, does do good things. Mm -hmm. I know everybody wants to bag on them. They do do good things. But in the, in the, in the, on the topic of wilderness, there's been nothing but failure. Yeah. Failure. Yeah. So that's where STC can fill the void. Um, we need a national uh, lobbying voice that's dedicated to just pushing policy in DC for the interest of mountain bike community purely just to, you know, keep us like, give us an equal seat at the table with conservation groups that have millions of dollars a year to spend on lobbying. That's what we need. 
Yep. That's what we need. And we need people, mm -hmm. uh, mountain bike community, especially those in the mountain bike community who have money. Because there's a lot of people in the Sierra Club and the Wilderness Society who have money who donate a lot of money to uh, that cause. Ton. And I feel like the mountain bike community is is maturing. And, there are, and I know for sure there are some very well-off people who ride mountain bikes who could have an impact either through connections or yeah. through finance. Like yes. we need to start putting our, or, you know, the money where our mouth is and, and, and start really pushing this because it's important. Every single new land designation of wilderness, we lose access or even a recommended wilderness mm -hmm. or wilderness study area. These aren't even acts of Congress. These are just recommended areas that might future become wilderness the Forest Service is managing them like wilderness, which means no bikes. And there's almost as much land as a wilderness study area or well recommended wilderness, like here in Nevada. Mm -hmm. There's dozens of them. Yep. Yes. Especially dozens up north. Them. Yeah. Yeah. Dozens of them. And locked out, even though it's not wilderness yet. Yeah. It's being managed like wilderness. Right. So this is, a. I feel like within the context of lobbying for the interests of mountain bikers, certainly when it concerns access in wilderness, case by case access as well, at the very least, IMBA is ineffective when you talk about lobbying for that fact, specific yes. interest. I don't think IMBA as a whole. The only people that would disagree with that are, are IMBA, but everyone else would agree that their policy, their strategy has been ineffective. Yes. And when I say ineffective, I mean they are ineffective at representing the voice of their constituents, the voice of the people that are paying them, the, their members. There was there was a petition that just went around recently, um, started by Philip Kai's NEMBA, which is the New England Mountain Bike Association, the one of the I think possibly the original uh, IMBA chapter mm -hmm. from nineteen back in the eighties. Philip Kai's has been involved with IMBA and and mountain biking since the eighties, mm -hmm. um, and he started a petition. This thing has garnered more than 7,000 signatures in a few weeks. I signed it. Yeah. Yep. Requesting that IMBA change their stance on HR 1349. So there's 7,000 people right there. Yes. Just in a couple weeks from an online petition. Yeah. yeah. So you can imagine there's how many people didn't see the petition or didn't know it existed or whatever, aren't on the internet that much. But it gives you an idea of like, yeah, there's a pretty sizable voice out there of mountain bikers who are like, what is going on here? Yeah. It, it should change. Um, I think that speaking to Imba, I think that Imba needs to Imba needs to get a get a better pulse. And remember, and and kind of what I, the the frustrating thing for me is that the messaging that Imba has sent us is is very patriarchal. You don't know better. We do know better. Yeah, and they never message. provide details as to why they know better. Exactly. It's always, right. We can't explain it to you. It's too complicated. But just trust us. And it's like, no, I don't think so. That's not how. It's not that complicated. This is what um, they say. So this is from Dave Weens, who's the who I thought was going to be a fantastic leader for him, but I, I assumed. We actually said that on the podcast. Yeah, but that was a bad choice of me. Whenever you associate a person's awesomeness on a, on a thing or in a thing with, with something else in their life, remember that they're just a human. We suck at lots of things. We might be good at one thing. It doesn't mean we're good at everything. So... Uh, he said, mountain bikers in the recreation community depend on public lands and thoughtful conservation. I agree with that. Public lands are being threatened at an unprecedented level right now, and it's imperative that public land users come together to protect these cherished places and offer our voices in this critical dialogue. I agree with that too. No disagreements yet, right? No. We know wilderness hits some mountain bikers' backyards, and we understand why those riders support this legislation. 
I'm not skipping any words here. To continue elevating mountain biking nationally, IMBA must remain focused on its long-term strategy for the bigger picture of our sport. And that was the, that was part of the message. That was the direct part of the message from the, the leader of IMBA. That, that's a, I feel like that's a, that's a huge problem. And I feel like there's interest. IMBA has some sort of interest, or perhaps they're locked out and they're trying to get some type of, you know, they're trying to work their way up something. I don't know what the deal is, but why do you just close off with vague messaging? Like to continue ele elevating mountain biking nationally, IMBA must remain focused on its long-term strategy for the big picture of our sport. What is that big picture? How does that not include wilderness designations? How is that, you know, that's not answered. So I think that what I'm getting at with all of this isn't necessarily just a bag on IMBA or IMBA, however you want to say it. But my, my point is us mountain bikers, we need to take the initiative to organize ourselves. And I don't think that we can trust existing organizations. If we want a seat at the table, it's up to not to, you know, when you're pointing to another person, you're pointing to yourself too. It, it absolutely has to be the case. Yeah. We have to get involved. And if we can get involved then we can find the best people to represent us, but it's not IMBA. Um, no, I mean, I think, you know, as far as getting involved, one of the biggest Achilles heels of mountain biking since its inception is that our level of engagement when it comes to advocacy, yeah. um, is pretty atrocious. Um, you look at how many people claim to have a mountain bike and ride a mountain bike, and then you look at the numbers as far as membership in local trail advocacy groups and how many hours volunteered. Although mountain bikers do volunteer a lot, yeah, it's usually like a like a small, a small percentage. Like, yeah, exactly. It's like one person will do ten or twelve volunteers days a day, a, yeah. week, a year, right? And then somebody else will do one volunteer day every ten years. Yeah. yeah. So it's really like we have got to. You know, people spend, we're talking about carbon wheels and, hey, how about, hey, I got an idea. That guy who had the money, save Wanted your money on carbon wheels and put it towards a trail advocacy group of your choice, yeah. in your neighborhood, in your area. It would do a huge amount of positive good for the sport. Yeah. And if we can all think more in that regard, like if you don't have money, that's cool, but show up and, and, and dig some dirt. If you do have money and you don't have time, write a check. Like we have got to start moving in that direction and we have got to realize that like, you know, a lot of the, the, the wilderness discussion, it, a lot of it is, um, is like talks about what happened in the past mm -hmm. or the intent or like, well, they didn't intend for that. Bikes have always been banned. That's just the way it was and blah, blah, blah. And, but let's, instead of arguing about the past, because we got the public records to show that Congress, yeah, <laughs> so yeah, that, that that argument to me is that's over. a lost yeah. argument. It's done. Yeah, like Congress never intended to ban bikes. End of discussion. I don't care what your opinion is. Here's the public record. Here's public documentation. Yeah, but instead, let's look to the future. Who are the future land stewards? Who are the future that are going to care for wilderness and and care about it? And look at like the growth of youth mountain biking. Nike right now Huge. is absolutely exploding in popularity nationwide. Yeah. Thousands more kids riding bikes every year. They, and, and like, if you look at the outdoor, I think there was a statistic from the outdoor industry between the ages of like six and 24. Um, like the percentage of kids who ride mountain bikes is like seven or eight percentage points higher than hiking. So there's a shift happening. There's a generational shift happening, not only with the users, but also with land managers, like land managers are younger. The old guards retiring, mm -hmm. you know, they're the younger generation. I see it every day with land managers, especially in our region here. There's yeah. some amazingly positive land managers who want recreation and they get like, they get it. 
And so we need to start like changing things for the future. Like let's adapt. That's what the beauty of the United States is. That's the beauty of the constitution. That's the beauty of a public, like a piece of like piece of legislation, like the wilderness act. It evolves as the country evolves. Yeah. And to stay like rooted in like looking backwards and, and, and be so stubborn about, well, this is what the intent was when you're not even correct. It's kind of sad. I mean, what are, what, what's going to happen to wilderness in the future if we don't have any advocates for it? Mm-hmm. I mean, these conservation groups—they're losing their 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 member bases, dying off. I mean, there's that old saying, right? Social change is measured one funeral at a time. Yeah, they're dying. Who's going to replace them? Let's let's take it. Let's see what the average age is of a Sierra Club member. Is getting it's in the like fifties, I think. Yep. Yeah. In the fifties. <laughs> yeah. It's aging. Yeah. So they need to start. And I have to say, there was an article that Sierra Club published. Um, not too long ago, like a week or two ago by Aaron Teasdale, who I really like his writing. Outstanding writing. It's a good article. Yeah, he's fantastic. It's a great article, but it's just so funny because like the mere fact that the Sierra Club broached the topic of bikes and wilderness, credit to them. They actually talked about it. Yeah. Yeah. Previously, this would be verboten topic. They would never mention this. Never discuss it. But they mention it and they talk about it. And Aaron goes into pretty in-depth and actually like makes a nice case for why bikes would reasonable case-by-case access would be good. But still comes out, the headline is like, should bikes be allowed in wilderness? (laughs) No. No, but (laughs) blah, 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 blah. It's like, okay, well, I could have expected that. So credit to them for actually like talking about the topic. Right. But case-by-case access, yes, I think is reasonable Reasonable. and that, Hey, we're making progress. I mean, right. Like if the Sierra club says this today, they print an article like this today. Hey, we're going in the right direction. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to bring up common objections to this Yeah. in, in, in some of which I find, I find logic and reasoning. So, uh, first one that I see is, and this one wraps back up into politics, but wilderness itself is is wilderness designations or it's the whole concept and the process itself everything else is under threat now as it wasn't in the previous administration it's more so under the current administration is the common narrative that we hear yeah. and i think it's that's justifiable you can see that yeah so the the fear is that while we're trying to get in here and we're trying to and when i say amend i'm using air quotes because once again we're really not amending anything nope. But we're coming in, and from their perspective, we're amending this this current ruling, once again, air quotes on that too, on wilderness, that we're only weakening the fight to protect wilderness. Instead, what we should be doing, or we shouldn't be doing that because essentially what we're doing is we're a little fly that's just, you know, creeping in and and distracting or causing more weakness. Are mountain bikers, in pushing for this effort, are we possibly threatening these, these sacred areas that are wilderness in that respect? Are we weakening the, the, the fight that they're doing right now against all the different things coming out of the current administration? If we had case by case access to wilderness, there'd be more people fighting for the protection of wilderness. I will never sign. I went to a friends of Nevada wilderness volunteer appreciation party a couple weeks ago. It was awesome. There were hundreds of people there. Cool. Like it was my first like wilderness organization, um, you know, party or whatever gathering. I just wanted to see like, Mm -hmm. what's the vibe, you know? And it was great. 
But the second I walk in the door, man, there's a nice guy who's like, hey, welcome. If you don't mind signing this petition for a couple new wilderness areas in interior Nevada, that'd be great. And I look at it and I look at him and I smile. I'm like, it's nice to be here. Thanks. And I just walked away. <laughs> like, I'm not going to sign it. Right. Yeah. Not going to sign it. And so I would have happily signed it mm-hmm. if we even had like case by case access, not even 100%, just case by case. And so, yeah. There'd be a lot more people fighting for the protection of these, this land designation yeah. if they would realize that we're not the enemy. Yeah. We're, we're, we're an ally to protecting public lands. We're not the enemy. As a counterpoint to that, if we suck at assembling ourselves as mountain bikers, will we really be adding that much weight to that fight, so to speak? You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, well, that's a good point, but... You got to remember the NRA is a very small special interest group. It's one of the smallest, but one of the most powerful. Now I am, I'm not comparing the NRA to mountain biking. However, right. I, I don't necessarily give much credence to, you know, a, a number of people in an organization and their relative influence. You could have a small number of people in an organization with a lot of motivation, a lot of money and a lot of connections and ha- make a huge impact. Yeah. So numbers to me aren't the only as long thing. as we have an organization that represents us. Well, that's right. And right now, unfortunately, Imba I think is kind of in their dire straits mode right now. They are yeah. struggling something fierce and I got it. I mean, it's to their own yeah, doing. This was nothing things. but them. They completely could have prevented the situation, but we're at where we're at. Do you think that we'll see a replacement for Imba in the near future? Um, you know, or is it a situation where Imba? I think that shift personally, the executive board needs to clean house. The, the, the executive board needs to be cleaned. Like, yeah, yeah, total clean slate. Yeah. Um, it's just they're driving the policy. It's not Dave Weens. Dave Weens is subject to what the executive board tells him that he has to do. He's the face. He's the face, and he's he's being he's not the boss. The board's the boss, mm-hmm. and the board's not elected, by the way. Right. So the board could just stay in position as long as they want yep. and do whatever the hell they want, even if they have nobody following them anymore and they've completely strayed from their original mission statement. Yeah. 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 Which would be- Which at that point, you'd need a new organization. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, <clears throat> another thing that I see a lot of people, um, so I guess this just gets into the usage issue is the fact that- by bringing bikes onto these trails, let's say we have case by case or full, uh, you know, full, full permission across the board, bikes are allowed in wilderness, that that will somehow defile the wilderness experience due to the conflicts that would arise on the trails between bikes and hikers. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that with multi-use trails that we ride on all the time, that there's conflict there and we can't deny that there's constant sure. conflict. Like in our, our listener's question earlier where a mountain biker was accosted and cursed yeah. at by a hiker. Yeah. Probably so I, an opposite you know, yeah, yeah. case that you would expect in this situation. Because I believe it's fair to say that, from the, that hikers see mountain bikers as intruders on the trail. Um, they usually utilize a larger machine and they usually utilize a lack of control, which is assumed and not true across the board unless Jerry's riding. But they they assume that that somehow puts them in danger and therefore po- possibly also puts trails in harm and as a result should not be allowed. 
However, we, I think that we know as mountain bikers, we don't have to talk about that when we know that that's a moot point. Yeah. On the other hand, um, if we as mountain bikers are not good stewards on the current trails that we had, that we have, and then we go into wilderness areas and we have case by case access mm -hmm. and we have situations where case by case access is approved. And then we have incidents because trust me, if we get case by case access to, we better be areas, on our best behavior. Exactly right. Yeah. Cause one step wrong, you drop that cliff bar wrapper. We're all done. <clears throat> No, it's, I mean, that's not, I don't think that's true. Well, I think that we're going to be under a magnifying glass. You well, can't deny that. So one thing I want to clarify on this topic is that, you know, case by case access means where it makes sense. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of places where mountain bikes and wilderness do not make sense. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I do not want to ride in Yosemite. I don't want to ride John Muir Trail. I don't want to ride in the high Sierra, wil those wilderness areas. It's not an ideal place for riding a bike, yeah. but there are literally millions of acres of land, especially in Nevada, where riding a mountain bike mountain bike is makes perfect sense, and there's nobody out there. You know, they talk like people who are against this talk about oh, they're going to have conflict and conflict this and conflict that, and they're looking at it from their lens, living in an urban area, using their backyard neighborhood trails, where mountain bikers rightfully are. I have to give it to. I mean, I have to say like. Hikers are rightfully, um, should be like, they have a point when they say that they fear being injured because there are mountain bikers who ride like idiots. Yes. Straight up. Absolutely. And that's part of our, like, as a mountain bike community, we need to manage that better. We need to educate our own people better. Yeah. Um, but people who say that the, the conflict, this and conflict that in wilderness, unless they're in a really popular wilderness area near a major population center, most wilderness areas are so remote, the trails are disappearing because nobody's using them. Yeah. Yes. Like this is this is the whole point of case-by-case -case access. So a few, a couple years back, I was looking at the Wind River Range and I was dreaming of the idea of having bike access there, but I was just re researching every aspect of the land and the trails and everything else. In the trail books that I was coming across, uh, com coming across the people that I talked to, even at the in the local Forest Service area and BL Bureau of Land Management in that region, everything else, all of them, whenever I was talking to them about different routes, they all said, "You're just not going to be able to trust on having trail there. It's sure. just disappeared." Yeah. Oh yeah. And <clears throat> the fact is, we need to be realistic with what the usage is on these on these wilderness areas. Yeah. Very rarely is it actually used. We right. have we have one that's very close to an urban center here in Reno. Yep. And that one gets hardly any, any usage. Yep. Hardly yep. any at all. That's right. We, when I go up there, I, I've, I've hiked up into that wilderness area plenty of times. I've come across one person and I've probably spent upwards of 24 hours hiking in that area. Yep. One person, that's it. So it's not as if, so I'm counterpointing my own counterpoint here. The, the, the point is, I don't believe that the conflict is some, I believe the conflict is a, is a cultural and individual issue that we have that we're putting in front of a much larger problem Correct. we need to solve. Absolutely. And it, Absolutely. it's something that we should, we need to change that, that perspective. Um, we all need to learn how to coexist. Exactly. Like this is public land. These are public trails within reason where appropriate. Everybody needs to just figure out how to get along and stop segregating. We're segregating ourselves as users yeah. when we're the biggest advocates for these lands and we're fighting with each other about who gets to use it in what way. It's, it's childish. Yeah. Yeah. I think that this, if anything, if anything, 
bikes in wilderness, what this is really highlighting is a fact that we can be better humans. Absolutely. And we can work together. And if this doesn't go through at the very least, hopefully what it does is educates us mountain bikers on the fact that we can take a higher ground and we can educate others and we can serve an ex as an example for other trail users and public land users and owners on how to actually, you know, coexist properly. I think that if, if we do that, let's say that the legislation doesn't go through, because let's be honest, there's so many things out of our control that are affecting that. Oh, yeah. yeah. So let's say that doesn't go through. At the very least, if this somehow unites us and, and helps us see that we can have a voice, that we can come together, and then helps us understand responsibility, we're better off. And I think that that makes it much easier in the future to, to advocate for access. Yeah, um, making it past the House committee was a big step. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, there were 7,000 people that signed that petition. If every single one who signed that petition sends a letter to their congressperson and makes a donation to the STC at the right time when it's needed, when they make the call mm -hmm. for action, we get 7,000 people to write letters. I guarantee you there's going to be some sway going on yeah. on the House floor when that bill comes to pass. Yeah. Yes. You'd be amazed at what 7,000 feels like. In terms it doesn't of sound like a lot, but when you have 7,000 letters. Yes, it's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah. I, I go through, um, for this podcast, we get usually somewhere around 50 to a hundred questions a week. Yeah. And by question 20, I swear that I'm on question 10,000. <laughs> yeah. So if you, I think, uh, we're right. very easily overwhelmed and we lose sight of quantity and, right. and, and relative quantities. Yeah. Um, I think that if we could do that, yeah, we could actually have a chance. And, and above all, if we get this wilderness access, almost more than my personal drive to ha to have access in wilderness areas. What I really want to see is us being able to educate these these trail users on how we actually can coexist, how we actually can work together. Yeah. Um, if we did that, I think that that will do more. I think that the wilderness area or wilderness thing is something we need to kind of stem the tide of blocking it off with the with the absurd blanket ban. Yeah. But if we can change that narrative and that dialogue within the multi-use trail community, then I think that that will do more to help mountain biking than anything else. Yeah, and I think changing the expectation of what you're going to experience when you're out on a ride. So if you're going for an after-work ride on your neighborhood trails, expect to be inconvenienced. And don't yeah. ride like you're racing or like trying to set a new Strava segment. Just yes. slow down, stop when it's when you need to, wave, smile, yeah. and enjoy the ride. Yeah. And 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 save the the tearing it up and going as fast as you can for those remote places where you're you know you're not going to see anybody. And if you do, you're going to see a couple people. Yeah. And you're keeping your heads up. Yeah. But I think it's just all about behavior. It's not about the bike. I don't think the reason why. Mm -hmm. bikes got banned from wilderness was because people hated bicycles. They just didn't want people riding bicycles in their presence because they were afraid either they're going to get run over or they just don't some, like them. Just don't like Had a bad experience and don't, don't like, like people riding bikes. Yep. yep. Which you know is common. Roadies definitely know that's common. Yeah. <laughs> so I, let's recap really quick. Things we can do to bring about this change that we're talking about. Uh, you can first... It sounds like a silly thing, but follow or like STC, Sustainable Trails Coalition, on Facebook. Yep. Go to their website and bookmark that. Subscribe to mailing lists. Yep. Also do the same for IMBA because at this point, they are the people that are representing us. Whether it's a great reality or not, they're representing us. Go there. Do the same thing. I would say, I, I would say make your donation to IMBA 
Oh no, I'm not saying donate to him. Oh, I'm sorry. Where do you follow say? them? Oh, follow. Make them. sure that you're educated on what they're doing. Oh, gotcha. Subscribe gotcha. Subscribe to their mailing list. Everything else. Okay. Now, when we talk about allocations of yeah. your donations, hold on to them. Right. Don't give them to IMBA if you don't agree with the until they change their stance. If you think they need to. Yep. Yeah. And if you are looking for a spot to pass donations. STC is the spot to do it currently. Once again, it isn't a replacement for Emba, but what they're doing is they're fighting a specific fight that could they could really help mountain biking. So it's yes. key that we recognize that and we fund those groups. Whereas currently, all we've heard from Emba is that they're gonna they're just gonna they're just gonna stay right here. Just gonna sit this one out. Give to your local <laughs> chapter if if you have Great a local Emba chapter, give to them. Yes. direct to them, not through Emba, but just straight to them. Yeah, yep. and and. So yeah, local trail group, whether they're Ember or not, and then STC, those those cover a lot of bases, but we still need a national voice yes. and we'll see what happens with, you know, Imba National. Yeah. Now that's what you can do to support organizations, what you can and also individually uh, as well. But what you can do individually next time you're on your bike, go out of your way to be kind and polite to people. Yes. It always. does not take a lot. No. It doesn't take anything. No. It should be natural. Yeah. It's just just pull over and smile. Don't chase KOMs. Just stop doing it. It doesn't stop matter. Stop doing it. There's no. no one cares. Your mom doesn't care, man. And you won't care. Uh -huh. Give yourself a few months and you won't care. Yeah. Like it's just it quit chasing them. Don't worry about that and just be good stewards on the trail. Yeah. And if we do that, I think that we're going to we have so many kids getting into this sport. And if we're basically building up all these kids and we're filling up this funnel, but in the end it drops into a pretty terrible place, yeah. then we're doing all of it for naught. So, and bringing up kids, that's another thing, you know, teaching them the, how to interact with, with hikers. You know, when we're up mentoring the kids and we're riding up a trail and I've got, you know, we've got a, a trail of 15 to 20 little ducklings yeah. behind us and we come by hikers what do we do? We all pull, pull over as a big caravan and let the hikers buy. And we're just super nice all the time. That's what you, you have to teach the youth in order to continue the growth of that relationship between hikers and mountain bikers. Yep. And the last thing I could uh, say too, is learn to respect these sacred places that are wilderness. And if you don't know anything about wilderness, start researching it. Learn about these areas. It's amazing, the stuff that you can find out about yeah. this terrain. You'll come to appreciate and love it. And, uh, yeah, and I guess on the internet, also one thing I just wanted to add, on the internet, be kind. And don't don't insult anybody that's a hiker that's trying to tell you that you're wrong for wanting access in wilderness. They just don't understand. They, they just have it come from a different perspective just like you do. And yeah. it's our opportunity to take the high road. So. Yeah. I think that covers it. I think it does. Anything else that you want to cover, Kurt, on this one? I think that's enough for now. Quite a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it's enough, man. All right. It's a tough topic. Stay tuned on that for more updates. Uh, let's close it out with the tips. You don't care? They'd count on your tips to live? Okay. I'll, I'll go first, Stephen. Uh-huh. Uh, it's tis the season for coldness. Okay. And something that I used the other day, cause well, it's not really that cold here in Reno right now. Strangely, it's just, it's kind of lukewarm, but it's, it's chilly enough that, that you usually pack on layers. Just want to remind everybody that something called embrocation exists. It keeps you toasty, smells good, makes you look tan. Three great things right there. Okay. Checked all boxes. 
So uh, tips with embrocation, do not put on embrocation and then use the restroom because that will be extremely uncomfortable because you'll have burning hot capsaicin cream all over sensitive bits. That'll be bad. Also do not jump into a hot steaming shower right after using something that has like a, a hot level of embrocation because you'll genuinely feel like you are being burned alive and that is not comfortable. So usually, <laughs> yeah, I recommend Rafa has something called the winter, embr winter embrocation. I know a lot of people hate on Rafa and I understand they, they have a pretense that, that precedes their brand that that's pretty uncomfortable and hard to deal with for a lot of people, but that company gets cycling big time. Uh, they, they're, they're, and they make incredible stuff. Okay. So their embrocation is not an exception. It's really good stuff, but cheaper embrocation that you can look at is mad alchemy, uh, mad alchemy. I should say that more clearly. And they have a bunch of different ones. I have one called gentleman's blend. Ah. That's, yes. Yeah. That's a good one. Uh, smells like rich mahogany. And then the other one that you can many do, leather bound books. Yes. <laughs> and then the <laughs> other one that you can have, they have a medium level one. That's, okay. that's really good. So I'd recommend that give it a shot. And it's pretty cool because a lot of the time you'll be riding and especially if it's raining or anything like that, if it's like 50 degrees in rain, a lot of the time I'll just pick embrocation over warmers and it puts a layer layer or oily layer on your skin too. And the water just beads right off. It's comfortable. So hmm. it's nice stuff. Nice. Yeah. Good cheaper, stuff. cheaper than warmers sometimes. There you go. Steven. Um, today I like E13. They're good stuff. They make good products. They do, man. Um, their tires have a level of, they're, they're, they're yeah, they're, they're pretty burly, I guess. I'll, I'll so yeah, tires are good. Their TRS race cassette and the new, the TRS plus is now 946 too. I run the, the race version on my cross bike, on my gravel bike. Um, but no, today I want to talk about their BB92 bottom bracket. Okay. So if you have a BB92, which a lot of bikes are coming with BB92, PF92, it's all the same standard. This bottom bracket is notoriously difficult to find for 30 mil spindles. Mm -hmm. So if you have race face, if you have E13, if you have Praxis, if you have, you know, yep. a lot and even SRAM BB30. Yep. This bottom bracket, not only is it a fully caged stainless steel bearing that presses directly into your bottom bracket interface. Okay. Double row bearings. So instead of just being one row of bearings around on each side, so non-drive side, drive side, each having one row of bearings, this has double the capacity. So the basically your contact is double. Much bigger. Much bigger. It won't wear out as quick. Won't wear out as which quick. Which is a problem longer. with those type of bearings. Exactly. So so anybody who knows any sort of press fit, you know, issues, you have a little narrow cup that sits in there and it'll end up creaking. So these things are three eighths of an inch, almost a half an inch wide, just on the press section. I've never had one creak. Um, I, I use them religiously on everything BB 92 that I own and any of my friends bikes that are BB 92. And the cool thing is E 13 puts a one year, no questions asked warranty. If anything fails on that, if the bearings don't feel as smooth as the day that you bought it, they will replace it. So Nobody. Is it heavy? Uh, it's six grams heavier than race faces, BB 92 single rows, which I've blown those apart. Sweet. I've destroyed the inner race on the race face version. And ever since putting the, the E 13s in all of my Yetis along the way, never had a single issue with one and nobody out there wheels, manufacturing Praxis, Chris King, none of them, nobody offers a warranty on their bearings specifically. It's pretty they sweet. actually omit their bearings specifically. E 13 says no. That's solid. One year warranty. They're a good brand. They're great. I love them. Cool. That's yeah. a good one, man. So yeah. 
I'll be looking at utilizing that. You will because something, something is happening soon. Yeah. 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 Kurt, how's it going? All right. So we got Embro and then like a real techie bottom bracket. Yeah. And so I'm going to go, um, kind of more towards trail. We're talking about wilderness and maintenance and trails. Are you going to talk about a surly? No, man. (laughs) I'm going to talk about a saw, a hand saw. Oh, good. Called this is a good one. The silky big boy. 2000. <laughs> Silky Big Boy 2000. That's really the name. Made in Japan. Oh, that's fantastic. High quality Japanese steel. It's like 14 inch long blade. This thing will saw, I've sawed through like 18 inch diameter mini a tree. It's basically yeah. a tree in the middle of the trail. Hand saw, strap to your bike or put it in your backpack and do, you know, lot, this past winter in the Sierra was all time. So we had lots of down trees and yeah. the first two months of the riding season was pretty much using the big boy. <laughs> and uh, man, this thing just like cuts through wood, like a hot knife through butter. Is this a folding blade? It's a folding blade. Fits you in can, a camelback. Fits in a camelback. Nice. You can oh, buy it sweet. on Amazon. And I think it's, it's not cheap. It's 60 bucks. That's actually pretty cheap dude, for a it's, saw. It's, it's a Japanese made like quality saw. It's not some cheap hunk of Chinese crap that's going to fall apart on you. Okay. Japanese. Does it have really cool like symbols all over it? And... No, it just says Silky Big Boy 2000 okay. on it. Which that's is good enough. Plenty. Let's be, let's be <laughs> real. That is good. I kind of <laughs> like quite, it. That's quite it's good. It's pretty bad. <laughs> Pull that thing up. I mean, you know, it's a 14 inch blade with a 14 inch handle. So you got this like 28 inch freaking giant saw in your hand. It's pretty sweet. Nice. Well, it's a Silky Big Boy 2000. Yeah. It's only 53 bucks there on Amazon go. right now. There is it go. Prime? And it's prime. Sign me up. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty awesome, man. That's a good one. So everybody carry a silky big boy, do some trail work, saw out some trees. So the hikers, when they come along, our horseback rider sees you and they can say, thank you. Yeah. That's great. You're helping me maintain the trails. Get some positive karma. That's good. I like it. With that, uh, we'll close this one out. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And thanks, Kurt, for showing up and dropping knowledge. We appreciate it, yes, man. Yes, sir. Thank you, guys. Yeah, of course. Uh, you remember, go to mtbpodcast.com. You can listen to the podcast there. You can share it from there. Please share. That's probably the most helpful thing you can yes. do. Um, the other thing that you can do is, is to buy swag that's on there. We'll be updating that very soon. And we'll talk to you all next week. Have a nice day. Hey guys, Jonathan here. Just wanted to thank you again for listening and let you know that if you like the song that you're hearing now and the one that you heard in the intro, it comes from Wave Riders Entertainment, my good friend Tommy Walter. Check it out if you're looking for more beats like this or some awesome tracks to listen to. We'll talk to you next week.